Chapter One of *The Hound of the Baskervilles* by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Clark, bgdavid.wordpress.com, and bgcoffee.net, based in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. *The Hound of the Baskervilles* by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Chapter One mr sherlock holmes mr sherlock holmes who was usually very late in the mornings save upon those not infrequent occasions when he was up all night was seated at the breakfast table i stood upon the hearth rug and picked up the stick which our visitor had left behind him the night before it was a fine thick piece of wood bulbous headed of the sort which is known as a penang lawyer just under the head was a broad silver band nearly an inch across to james mortimer m r c s from his friends of the c c h was engraved upon it with the date eighteen eighty four it was just such a stick as the old-fashioned family practitioner used to carry dignified solid and reassuring well watson what do you make of it Holmes was sitting with his back to me and I had given him no sign of my occupation how did you know what I was doing I believe you have eyes in the back of your head I have at least a well-polished silver-plated coffee pot in front of me said he but tell me Watson what do you make of our visitors stick since we have been so unfortunate as to miss him and have no notion of his errand this accidental souvenir becomes of importance let me hear you reconstruct the man by an examination of it i think said i following as far as i could the methods of my companion the dr mortimer is a successful elderly medical man well esteemed since those who know him give him his mark of their appreciation good said holmes excellent I think also that the probability is in favour of his being a country practitioner who does a great deal of his visiting on foot why so because this stick though originally a very handsome one has been so knocked about that i can hardly imagine a town practitioner carrying it the thick iron ferrule is worn down so it is evident that he has done a great amount of walking with it perfectly sound said holmes and then again there is the friends of the cch i should guess that to be the something hunt the local hunt whose members he has possibly given some surgical assistance and which has made him a small presentation in return really watson you excel yourself said holmes pushing back his chair and lighting a cigarette i am bound to say that in all the accounts which you have been so good as to give of my own small achievements you have habitually underrated your own abilities it may be that you are not yourself luminous but you are a conductor of light some people without possessing genius have a remarkable power of stimulating it i confess my dear fellow that i am very much in your debt he had never said as much before and i must admit that his words gave me keen pleasure for i had often been piqued by his indifference to my admiration and to the attempts which i had made to give publicity to his methods i was proud too to think that i had so far mastered his system as to apply it in a way which earned his approval he now took the stick from my hands 
and examined it for a few minutes with his naked eyes then with an expression of interest he laid down his cigarette and carrying the cane to the window he looked over it again with a convex lens interesting though elementary said he as he returned to his favorite corner of the settee there are certainly one or two indications upon the stick it gives us the basis for several deductions has anything escaped me i asked with some self-importance i trust that there's nothing of consequence which i've overlooked i am afraid my dear watson that most of your conclusions were erroneous when i said that, that you stimulated me i meant to be frank that in noting your fallacies i was occasionally guided towards the truth not that you are entirely wrong in this instance the man is certainly a country practitioner and he walks a great deal then i was right to that extent but that was all no no my dear watson not all by no means all i would suggest for example that a presentation to a doctor is more likely to come from a hospital than from a hunt and that when initials cc are placed before that hospital the words charing cross very naturally suggest themselves you may be right the probability lies in that direction and if we take this as a working hypothesis we have a fresh basis from which to start our construction of this unknown visitor well then supposing that cch does stand for charing cross hospital what further inferences may we draw do none suggest themselves you know my methods apply them i can only think of the obvious conclusion that the man has practiced in town before going to the country i think that we might venture a little farther than this look at it in this light on what occasion would it be most probable that such presentation would be made when would his friends unite to give him a pledge of their goodwill obviously at the moment when dr mortimer withdrew from the service of the hospital in order to start a practice for himself we know there has been a presentation we believe there has been a change from a town hospital to a country practice is it then stretching our inference too far to say that the presentation was on the occasion of the change it certainly seems probable now you will observe that he could not have been on the staff of the hospital since only a man well established in a london practice could hold such a position and such a one would not drift into the country what was he then if he was in the hospital and yet not on the staff he could only have been a house surgeon or a house physician little more than a senior student and he left five years ago the date is on the stick so your grave middle-aged family practitioner vanishes into thin air my dear watson and there emerges a young fellow under thirty amiable unambitious absent-minded and the possessor of a favorite dog which i should describe roughly as being larger than a terrier and smaller than a mastiff i laughed incredulously as sherlock holmes leaned back in his settee and blew little wavering rings of smoke up to the ceiling as to the latter part i have no means of checking you said i but at least it is not difficult to find out a few particulars about the man's age and professional career 
from my small medical shelf i took down the medical directory and turned up the name there were several mortimers but only one could be our visitor i read his record aloud mortimer james mrcs 1882 grimpen dartmoor devon house surgeon from 1882 to 1884 at charing cross hospital winner of the jackson prize for comparative pathology with essay entitled is disease a reversion corresponding member of the swedish pathological society author of some freaks of atavism lancet 1882 do we progress journal of psychology march 1883 medical officer for the parishes of grimpen thorsley and high barrow no mention of that local hunt watson said holmes with a mischievous smile but a country doctor as you very astutely observed i think that i am fairly justified in my inferences as to the adjectives i said if i remember right amiable unambitious and absent-minded it is my experience that it is only an amiable man in this world who receives testimonials only an unambitious one who abandons a london career for the country and only an absent-minded one who leaves his stick and not his visiting card after waiting an hour in your room and the dog has been in the habit of carrying this stick behind his master being a heavy stick the dog has held it tightly by the middle and the marks of his teeth are very plainly visible the dog's jaw as shown in the space between these marks is too broad in my opinion for a terrier and not broad enough for a mastiff it may have been yes by jove it is a curly-haired spaniel he had risen and paced the room as he spoke now he halted in the recess of the window there was such a ring of conviction in his voice that i glanced up in surprise my dear fellow how can you possibly be so sure of that for the very simple reason that i see the dog himself on our very doorstep and there is the ring of its owner don't move i beg you watson he is a professional brother of yours and your presence may be of assistance to me now is the dramatic moment of fate watson when you hear a step upon the stair which is walking into your life and you know not whether for good or ill what does dr james mortimer the man of science ask of sherlock holmes the specialist in crime come in the appearance of our visitor was a surprise to me since i had expected a typical country practitioner he was a very tall thin man with a long nose like a beak which jutted out between two keen gray eyes set closely together and sparkling brightly from behind a pair of gold-rimmed glasses he was clad in a professional but rather slovenly fashion for his frock coat was dingy and his trousers frayed though young his long back was already bowed and he walked with a forward thrust of his head and a general air of peering benevolence as he entered his eyes fell upon the stick in holmes's hand and he ran towards it with an exclamation of joy i'm so very glad said he i was not so sure whether i had left it here or in the shipping office i would not lose that stick for the world a presentation i see said holmes yes sir from charing cross hospital from one or two friends there on the occasion of my marriage dear dear that's bad said holmes shaking his head 
dr mortimer blinked through his glasses in mild astonishment why was it bad only that you have disarranged our little deductions your marriage you say yes sir i married and so left the hospital and with it all hopes of a consulting practice it was necessary to make a home of my own come come we are not so far wrong after all said holmes and now dr james mortimer mr sir mr a humble m r c s and a man of precise mind evidently a dabbler in science mr holmes a picker-up of shells on the shores of the great unknown ocean i presume that it is mr sherlock holmes who i am addressing and not no this is my friend dr watson glad to meet you sir i have heard your name mentioned in connection with that of your friend you interest me very much mr holmes i had hardly expected so doly chocephalic a skull of such well-marked supraorbital development would you have any objection to my running my finger along your parietal fissure a cast of your skull sir until the original is available would be an ornament to any anthropological museum it is not my intention to be fulsome but i confess that i covet your skull sherlock holmes waved our strange visitor into a chair you are an enthusiast in your line of thought i perceive sir as i am in mine said he i observe from your forefinger that you make your own cigarettes have no hesitation in lighting one the man drew out paper and tobacco and twirled the one up in the other with surprising dexterity he had long quivering fingers as agile and restless as the antennae of an insect holmes was silent but his little darting glances showed me the interest which he took in our curious companion i presume sir said he at last that it was not merely for the purpose of examining my skull that you have done me the honour to call here last night and again to-day no sir no though i am happy to have had the opportunity of doing that as well i came to you mr holmes because i recognize that i am myself an unpractical man and because i am suddenly confronted with a most serious and extraordinary problem recognizing as i do that you are the second highest expert in europe indeed sir may i inquire who has the honour to be the first asked holmes with some asperity to the man of precisely scientific mind the work of monsieur bertillon must always appeal strongly then had you not better consult him i said sir to the precisely scientific mind but as a practical man of affairs it is acknowledged that you stand alone i trust sir that i have not inadvertently just a little said holmes i think dr mortimer you would do wisely if without more ado you would kindly tell me plainly what the exact nature of the problem is in which you demand my assistance end of chapter one another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Chapter 2 of The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2. The Curse of the Baskervilles. I have in my pocket a manuscript, said Dr. James Mortimer. I observed it as you entered the room, said Holmes. It is an old manuscript. Early 18th century, unless it is a forgery. How can you say that, sir? You have presented an inch or two of it to my examination all the time that you have been talking. It would be a poor expert who could not give the date of a document within a decade or so. You may possibly have read my little monograph upon the subject. I put that at 1730. The exact date is 1742. Dr. Mortimer drew it from his breast pocket. This family paper was committed to my care by Sir Charles Baskerville, whose sudden and tragic death some three months ago created so much excitement in Devonshire. I may say that I was his personal friend as well as his medical attendant. He was a strong-minded man, sir, shrewd, practical, and as unimaginative as I am myself. Yet he took this document very seriously, and his mind was prepared for just such an end as did eventually overtake him. Holmes stretched out his hand for the manuscript and flattened it upon his knee. You will observe, Watson, the alternative use of the long S and the short. It is one of several indications which enabled me to fix the date. I looked over his shoulder at the yellow paper and the faded script. At the head was written, Baskerville Hall, and below, in large, scrawling figures, 1742. It appears to be a statement of some sort. Yes, it is a statement of a certain legend which runs in the Baskerville family. But I understand that it is something more modern and practical upon which you wish to consult me. Most modern, a most practical, pressing matter, which must be decided within twenty-four hours. But the manuscript is short, and is intimately connected with the affair. With your permission, I will read it to you. Holmes leaned back in his chair, placed his fingertips together, and closed his eyes with an air of resignation. Dr. Mortimer turned the manuscript to the light, and read in a high, cracking voice, the following curious old-world narrative. Of the origin of the Hound of the Baskervilles, there have been many statements, yet as I come in a direct line from Hugo Baskerville, and as I had the story from my father, who also had it from his, I have set it down with all belief that it occurred even as is here set forth. And I would have you believe, my sons, that the same justice which punishes sin may also most graciously forgive it, and that no ban is so heavy, but that by prayer and repentance it may be removed. Learn then from this story not to fear the fruits of the past, but rather to be circumspect in the future, that those foul passions whereby our family has suffered so grievously may not again be loosed to our undoing. Know then that in the time of the Great Rebellion, the history of which by the learned Lord Clarendon I most earnestly commend to your attention, this manor of Baskerville was held by Hugo of that name. Nor can it be gainsaid 
that he was a most wild profane and godless man this in truth his neighbours might have pardoned seeing that saints have never flourished in those parts but there was in him a certain wanton and cruel humour which made his name a byword through the west it chanced that this hugo came to love if indeed so dark a passion may be known under so bright a name the daughter of a yeoman who held lands near the baskerville estate but the young maiden being discreet and of good repute would ever avoid him for she feared his evil name so it came to pass that one michaelmas this hugo with five or six of his idle and wicked companions stole down upon the farm and carried off the maiden her father and brothers being from home as he well knew when they had brought her to the hall the maiden was placed in an upper chamber while hugo and his friends sat down to a long carouse as was their nightly custom now the poor lass upstairs was like to have her wits turned at the singing and shouting and terrible oaths which came up to her from below for they say that the words used by hugo baskerville when he was in wine were such as might blast the man who said them at last in the stress of her fear she did that which might have daunted the bravest or most active man for by the aid of the growth of ivy which covered and still covers the south wall she came down from under the eaves and so homeward across the moor there being three leagues betwixt the hall and her father's farm it chanced that some little time later hugo left his guests to carry food and drink with other worse things perchance to his captive and so found the cage empty and the bird escaped then as it would seem he became as one that hath a devil for rushing down the stairs into the dining hall he sprang upon the great table flagons and trenchers flying before him and he cried aloud before all the company that he would that very night render his body and soul to the powers of evil if he might not overtake the wench and while the revellers stood aghast at the fury of the man one more wicked or it may be more drunken than the rest cried out that they should put the hounds upon her whereat hugo ran from the house crying to his grooms that they should saddle his mare and unkennel the pack and giving the hounds a kerchief of the maids he swung them to the line and so off full cry in the moonlight over the moor now for some space the revellers stood agape unable to understand all that had been done in such haste but anon their bemused wits awoke to the nature of the deed which was like to be done upon the moorlands everything was now in an uproar some calling for their pistols some for their horses and some for another flask of wine but at length some sense came back to their crazed minds and the whole of them thirteen in number took horse and started in pursuit the moon shone clear above them and they rode swiftly abreast taking that course which the maid must needs have taken if she were to reach her own home they had gone a mile or two when they passed one of the night shepherds upon the moorlands and they cried to him to know if he had seen the hunt and the man as the story goes was so crazed with fear that he could scarce speak but at last he said that he had indeed seen the unhappy maiden with the hounds upon her track but i have seen more than that said he for hugo baskerville passed me upon his black mare 
and there ran mute behind him such a hound of hell as god forbid should ever be at my heels so the drunken squires cursed the shepherd and rode onward but soon their skins turned cold for there came a galloping across the moor and the black mare dabbled with white froth went past with trailing bridle and empty saddle then the revellers rode close together for a great fear was on them but they still followed over the moor though each had he been alone would have been right glad to have turned his horse's head riding slowly in this fashion they came at last upon the hounds these though known for their valour and their breed were whimpering in a cluster at the head of a deep dip or goyle as we call it upon the moor some slinking away and some with starting hackles and staring eyes gazing down the narrow valley before them the company had come to a halt more sober men as you may guess than when they started the most of them would by no means advance but three of them the boldest or it may be the most drunken rode forward down the goyle now it opened into a broad space in which stood two of those great stones still to be seen there which were set by certain forgotten peoples in the days of old the moon was shining bright upon the clearing and there in the centre lay the unhappy maid where she had fallen dead of fear and of fatigue but it was not the sight of her body nor yet that of the body of hugo baskerville lying near her which raised the hair upon the heads of these three daredevil roisterers but it was that standing over hugo and plucking at his throat there stood a foul thing a great black beast shaped like a hound yet larger than any hound that ever mortal eye has rested upon and even as they looked the thing tore the throat out of hugo baskerville on which as it turned its blazing eyes and dripping jaws upon them the three shrieked with fear and rode for dear life still screaming across the moor one it is said died that very night of what he had seen and the other twain were but broken men for the rest of their days such is the tale my sons of the coming of the hound which is said to have plagued the family so sorely ever since if i have set it down it is because that which is clearly known hath less terror than that which is but hinted at and guessed nor can it be denied that many of the family have been unhappy in their deaths which have been sudden bloody and mysterious yet may we shelter ourselves in the infinite goodness of providence which would not forever punish the innocent beyond that third or fourth generation which is threatened in holy writ to that providence my sons i hereby commend you and i counsel you by way of caution to forbear from crossing the moor in those dark hours when the powers of evil are exalted this from hugo baskerville to his sons roger and john with instructions that they say nothing thereof to their sister elizabeth when dr mortimer had finished reading this singular narrative he pushed his spectacles up on his forehead and stared across at mr sherlock holmes the latter yawned and tossed the end of his cigarette into the fire well said he do you not find it interesting to a collector of fairy tales dr mortimer drew a folded newspaper out of his pocket now mr holmes we will give you something a little more recent this is the devon county chronicle 
of may fourteenth of this year it is a short account of the facts elicited at the death of sir charles baskerville which occurred a few days before that date my friend leaned a little forward and his expression became intent our visitor readjusted his glasses and began the recent sudden death of sir charles baskerville whose name has been mentioned as the probable liberal candidate for mid-devon at the next election has cast a gloom over the county though sir charles had resided at baskerville hall for a comparatively short period his amiability of character and extreme generosity had won the affection and respect of all who had been brought into contact with him in these days of nouveau riche it is refreshing to find a case where the scion of an old county family which had fallen upon evil days is able to make his own fortune and to bring it back with him to restore the fallen grandeur of his line sir charles as is well known made large sums of money in south african speculation more wise than those who go on until the wheel turns against them he realized his gains and returned to england with them it is only two years since he took up his residence at baskerville hall and it is common talk how large were those schemes of reconstruction and improvement which have been interrupted by his death being himself childless it was his openly expressed desire that the whole countryside should within his own lifetime profit by his good fortune and many will have personal reasons for bewailing his untimely end his generous donations to local and county charities have been frequently chronicled in these columns the circumstances connected with the death of sir charles cannot be said to have been entirely cleared up by the inquest but at least enough has been done to dispose of those rumours to which local superstition has given rise there is no reason whatever to suspect foul play or to imagine that death could be from any but natural causes sir charles was a widower and a man who may be said to have been in some ways of an eccentric habit of mind in spite of his considerable wealth he was simple in his personal tastes and his indoor servants at baskerville hall consisted of a married couple named barrymore the husband acting as butler and the wife as housekeeper their evidence corroborated by that of several friends tends to show that sir charles health has for some time been impaired and points especially to some affection of the heart manifesting itself in changes of color breathlessness and acute attacks of nervous depression dr james mortimer the friend and medical attendant of the deceased has given evidence to the same effect the facts of the case are simple sir charles baskerville was in the habit every night before going to bed of walking down the famous yew alley of baskerville hall the evidence of barrymore's shows that this had been his custom on the fourth of may sir charles had declared his intention of starting next day for london and had ordered barrymore to prepare his luggage that night he went out as usual for his nocturnal walk in the course of which he was in the habit of smoking a cigar he never returned at twelve o'clock barrymore finding the hall door still open became alarmed and lighting a lantern went in search of his master the day had been wet and sir charles's footmarks were easily traced down the alley halfway down this walk there is a gate which leads out onto the moor there were indications that sir charles had stood for some little time here 
he then proceeded down the alley and it was at the far end of it that his body was discovered one fact which has not been explained is the statement of barrymore that his master's footprints altered their character from the time that he passed the moorgate that he appeared from thence onward to have been walking upon his toes one murphy a gypsy horse-dealer was on the moor at no great distance at the time but he appears by his own confession to have been the worse for drink he declares that he heard cries but is unable to state from what direction they came no signs of violence were to be discovered upon sir charles's person and though the doctor's evidence pointed to an almost incredible facial distortion so great that dr mortimer refused at first to believe that it was indeed his friend and patient who lay before him it was explained that is a symptom which is not unusual in cases of dyspnea and death from cardiac exhaustion this explanation was borne out by the post-mortem examination which showed long-standing organic disease and the coroner's jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence it is well that this is so for it is obviously of the utmost importance that sir charles's heir should settle at the hall and continue the good work which has been so sadly interrupted had the prosaic finding of the coroner not finally put an end to the romantic stories which have been whispered in connection with the affair it might have been difficult to find a tenant for baskerville hall it is understood that the next of kin is mr henry baskerville if he is still alive the son of sir charles baskerville's younger brother the young man when last heard of was in america and inquiries are being instituted with a view to informing him of his good fortune dr mortimer refolded his paper and replaced it in his pocket those are the public facts mr holmes in connection with the death of sir charles baskerville i must thank you said sherlock holmes for calling my attention to a case which certainly presents some features of interest i had observed some newspaper comment at the time but i was exceedingly preoccupied by that little affair of the vatican cameos and in my anxiety to oblige the pope i lost touch with several interesting english cases this article you say contains all the public facts it does then let me have the private ones he leaned back put his fingertips together and assumed his most impassive and judicial expression in doing so said dr mortimer who had begun to show signs of some strong emotion i am telling that which i have not confided to anyone my motive for withholding it from the coroner's inquiry is that a man of science shrinks from placing himself in the public position of seeming to endorse a popular superstition i had the further motive that baskerville hall as the paper says would certainly remain untenanted if anything were done to increase its already rather grim reputation for both these reasons i thought that i was justified in telling rather less than i knew since no practical good could result from it but with you there is no reason why i should not be perfectly frank the moor is very sparsely inhabited and those who live near each other are thrown very much together for this reason i saw a good deal of sir charles baskerville with the exception of mr frankland of laughter hall and mr stapleton the naturalist there are no other men of education within many miles sir charles was a retiring man 
but the chance of his illness brought us together and a community of interest in science kept us so he had brought back much scientific information from south africa and many a charming evening we had spent together discussing the comparative anatomy of the bushman and the hottentot within the last few months it became increasingly plain to me that sir charles's nervous system was strained to the breaking point he had taken this legend which i have read you exceedingly to heart so much so that although he would walk in his own grounds nothing would induce him to go out upon the moor at night incredible as it may appear to you mr holmes he was honestly convinced that a dreadful fate overhung his family and certainly the records which he was able to give of his ancestors were not encouraging the idea of some ghastly presence constantly haunted him and on more than one occasion he has asked me whether i had on my medical journeys at night ever seen any strange creature or heard the baying of a hound the latter question he put to me several times and always with a voice which vibrated with excitement i can well remember driving up to his house in the evening some three weeks before the fatal event he chanced to be at his hall door i had descended from my gig and was standing in front of him when i saw his eyes fix themselves over my shoulder and stare past me with an expression of the most dreadful horror i whisked round and had just time to catch a glimpse of something which i took to be a large black calf passing at the head of the drive so excited and alarmed was he that i was compelled to go down to the spot where the animal had been and look around for it it was gone however and the incident appeared to make the worst impression upon his mind i stayed with him all the evening and it was on that occasion to explain the emotion which he had shown that he confided to my keeping that narrative which i read to you when i first came in i mention this small episode because it assumes some importance in view of the tragedy which followed but i was convinced at the time that the matter was entirely trivial and that his excitement had no justification i was at my advice that sir charles was about to go to london his heart was i knew affected and the constant anxiety in which he lived however chimerical the cause of it might be was evidently having a serious effect upon his health i thought that a few months among the distractions of town would send him back a new man mr stapleton a mutual friend who was much concerned at his state of health was of the same opinion at the last instant came this terrible catastrophe on the night of sir charles's death barrymore the butler who made the discovery sent perkins the groom on horseback to me and as i was sitting up late i was able to reach baskerville hall within an hour of the event i checked and corroborated all the facts which were mentioned at the inquest i followed the footsteps down the yew alley i saw the spot at the moorgate where he seemed to have waited i remarked the change in the shape of the prince after that point i noted that there were no other footsteps save those of barrymore on the soft gravel and finally i carefully examined the body which had not been touched until my arrival sir charles lay on his face his arms out his fingers dug into the ground and his features convulsed with some strong emotion to such an extent that i could hardly have sworn to his identity there was certainly no physical injury of any kind 
but one false statement was made by barrymore at the inquest he said that there were no traces upon the ground round the body he did not observe any but i did some little distance off but fresh and clear footprints footprints a man's or a woman's dr mortimer looked strangely at us for an instant and his voice sank almost to a whisper as he answered mr holmes they were the footprints of a gigantic hound end of chapter two chapter three of the hound of the baskervilles by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three the problem i confess at these words a shudder passed through me there was a thrill in the doctor's voice which showed that he was himself deeply moved by that which he told us holmes leaned forward in his excitement and his eyes had the hard dry glitter which shot from them when he was keenly interested you saw this as clearly as i see you and you said nothing what was the use how was it that no one else saw it the marks were some twenty yards from the body and no one gave them a thought i don't suppose i should have done so had i not known this legend there are many sheepdogs on the moor no doubt but this was no sheepdog you say it was large enormous but it had not approached the body no what sort of night was it damp and raw but not actually raining no what is the alley like there are two lines of old yew hedge twelve feet high and impenetrable the walk in the center is about eight feet across is there anything between the hedges and the walk yes there is a strip of grass about six feet broad on either side i understand that the yew hedge is penetrated at one point by a gate yes the wicket gate which leads on to the moor is there any other opening none so that to reach the yew alley one either has to come down it from the house or else to enter it by the moor gate there is an exit through a summer house at the far end had sir charles reached this no he lay about fifty yards from it now tell me dr mortimer and this is important the marks which you saw were on the path and not on the grass no marks could show on the grass were they on the same side of the path as the moorgate yes they were on the edge of the path on the same side as the moorgate you interest me exceedingly another point was the wicket gate closed closed and padlocked how high was it about four feet high then anyone could have got over it yes and what marks did you see by the wicket gate none in particular good heaven did no one examine yes i examined myself and found nothing it was all very confused sir charles had evidently stood there for five or ten minutes how do you know that because the ash had twice dropped from his cigar excellent 
this is a colleague watson after our own heart but the marks he had left his own marks all over that small patch of gravel i could discern no others sherlock holmes struck his hand against his knee with an impatient gesture if i had only been there he cried it is evidently a case of extraordinary interest and one which presented immense opportunities to the scientific expert that gravel page upon which i might have read so much has been long ere this smudged by the rain and defaced by the clogs of curious peasants oh dr mortimer dr mortimer to think that you should not have called me in you have indeed much to answer for i could not call you in mr holmes without disclosing these facts to the world and i have already given my reasons for not wishing to do so besides besides why do you hesitate there is a realm in which the most acute and most experienced of detectives is helpless you mean that the thing is supernatural i did not positively say so no but you evidently think it since the tragedy mr holmes there have come to my ears several incidents which are hard to reconcile with the settled order of nature for example i find that before the terrible event occurred several people had seen a creature upon the moor which corresponds with this baskerville demon and which could not possibly be any animal known to science they all agreed that it was a huge creature luminous ghastly and spectral i have cross-examined these men one of them a hard-headed countryman one a farrier and one a moorland farmer who all tell the same story of this dreadful apparition exactly corresponding to the hell-hound of the legend i assure you that there is a reign of terror in the district and that it is a hardy man who will cross the moor at night and you a trained man of science believe it to be supernatural i do not know what to believe holmes shrugged his shoulders i have hitherto confined my investigations to this world said he in a modest way i have combated evil but to take on the father of evil himself would perhaps be too ambitious a task yet you must admit that the footmark is material the original hound was material enough to tug a man's throat out and yet he was diabolical as well i see that you have quite gone over to the supernaturalists but now dr mortimer tell me this if you hold these views why have you come to consult me at all you tell me in the same breath that it is useless to investigate sir charles's death and that you desire me to do it i did not say that i desired you to do it then how can i assist you by advising me as to what i should do with sir henry baskerville who arrives at waterloo station dr mortimer looked at his watch in exactly one hour and a quarter he being the heir yes on the death of sir charles we inquired for this young gentleman and found that he had been farming in canada from the accounts which have reached us he is an excellent fellow in every way i speak now not as a medical man but as a trustee and executor of sir charles's will there is no other claimant i presume none the only other kinsman 
whom we have been able to trace was roger baskerville the youngest of three brothers of whom poor sir charles was the elder the second brother who died young is the father of this lad henry the third roger was the black sheep of the family he came of the old masterful baskerville strain and was the very image they tell me of the family picture of old hugo he made england too hot to hold him fled to central america and died there in eighteen seventy six of yellow fever henry is the last of the baskervilles in one hour and five minutes i meet him at waterloo station i have had a wire that he arrived at southampton this morning now mr holmes what would you advise me to do with him why should he not go to the home of his fathers it seems natural does it not and yet consider that every baskerville who goes there meets with an evil fate i feel sure that if sir charles could have spoken with me before his death he would have warned me against bringing this the last of the old race and the heir to great wealth to that deadly place and yet it cannot be denied that the prosperity of the whole poor bleak countryside depends upon his presence all the good work which has been done by sir charles will crash to the ground if there is no tenant of the hall i fear lest i should be swayed too much by my own obvious interest in the matter and that is why i bring the case before you and ask for your advice holmes considered for a little time put into plain words the matter is this said he in your opinion there is a diabolical agency which makes dartmoor an unsafe abode for a baskerville that is your opinion at least i might go the length of saying that there is some evidence that this may be so exactly but surely if your supernatural theory be correct it could work the young man evil in london as easily as in devonshire a devil with merely local powers like a parish vestry would be too inconceivable a thing you put the matter more flippantly mr holmes than you would probably do if you were brought into personal contact with these things your advice then as i understand it is that the young man will be as safe in devonshire as in london he comes in fifty minutes what would you recommend i recommend sir that you take a cab call off your spaniel who is scratching at my front door and proceed to waterloo to meet sir henry baskerville and then and then you will say nothing to him at all until i have made up my mind about the matter how long will it take you to make up your mind twenty-four hours at ten o'clock tomorrow dr mortimer i will be much obliged to you if you will call upon me here and it will be of help to me in my plans for the future if you will bring sir henry baskerville with you i will do so mr holmes he scribbled the appointment on his shirt cuff and hurried off in his strange peering absent-minded fashion holmes stopped him at the head of the stair only one more question dr mortimer you say that before sir charles baskerville's death several people saw this apparition upon the moor three people did did any see it after i have not heard of any thank you good morning holmes returned to his seat with that quiet look of inward satisfaction which meant that he had a congenial task before him 
going out watson unless i can help you no my dear fellow it is at the hour of action that i turn to you for aid but this is splendid really unique from some points of view when you pass bradley's would you ask him to send up a pound of the strongest shag tobacco thank you it would be as well if you could make it convenient not to return before evening then i should be very glad to compare impressions as to this most interesting problem which has been submitted to us this morning i knew that seclusion and solitude were very necessary for my friend in those hours of intense mental concentration during which he weighed every particle of evidence constructed alternative theories balanced one against the other and made up his mind as to which points were essential and which immaterial i therefore spent the day at my club and did not return to baker street until evening it was nearly nine o'clock when i found myself in the sitting-room once more my first impression as i opened the door was that a fire had broken out for the room was so filled with smoke that the light of the lamp upon the table was blurred by it as i entered however my fears were set at rest for it was the acrid fumes of strong coarse tobacco which took me by the throat and set me coughing through the haze i had a vague vision of holmes in his dressing-gown coiled up in an armchair with his black clay pipe between his lips several rolls of paper lay around him caught cold watson said he no it's this poisonous atmosphere i suppose it is pretty thick now that you mention it thick it's intolerable open the window then you've been at your club all day i perceive my dear holmes am i right certainly but how he laughed at my bewildered expression there is a delightful freshness about you watson which makes it a pleasure to exercise any small powers which i possess at your expense a gentleman goes forth on a showery and miry day he returns immaculate in the evening with a gloss still on his hat and his boots he has been a fixture therefore all day he is not a man with intimate friends where then could he have been is it not obvious well it is rather obvious the world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes where do you think that i have been a fixture also on the contrary i have been to devonshire in spirit exactly my body has remained in this armchair and has i regret to observe consumed in my absence two large pots of coffee and an incredible amount of tobacco after you left i sent down to stamford's for the ordnance map of this portion of the moor and my spirit has hovered over it all day i flatter myself that i could find my way about a large-scale map i presume very large he unrolled one section and held it over his knee here you have the particular district which concerns us that is baskerville hall in the middle with a wood around it exactly i fancy the yew alley though not marked under that name must stretch along this line with the moor as you perceive upon the right of it this small clump of buildings here is the hamlet of grimpen where our friend dr mortimer has his headquarters within a radius of five miles there are as you see only a very few scattered dwellings here is laughter hall 
which was mentioned in the narrative there is a house indicated here which may be the residence of the naturalist stapleton if i remember right was his name here are two moorland farmhouses high tor and falmire then fourteen miles away the great convict prison of princetown between and around these scattered points extends the desolate lifeless moor this then is the stage upon which tragedy has been played and upon which we may help to play it again it must be a wild place yes the setting is a worthy one if the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of men then you are yourself inclining to the supernatural explanation the devil's agents may be of flesh and blood may they not there are two questions waiting for us at the outset the one is whether any crime has been committed at all the second is what is the crime and how was it committed of course if dr mortimer's surmise should be correct and we are dealing with forces outside the ordinary laws of nature there is an end of our investigation but we are bound to exhaust all other hypotheses before falling back upon this one i think we'll shut that window again if you don't mind it is a singular thing that i find that a concentrated atmosphere helps a concentration of thought i have not pushed it to the length of getting into a box to think but that is the logical outcome of my convictions have you turned the case over in your mind yes i've thought a good deal of it in the course of the day what do you make of it it is very bewildering it has certainly a character of its own there are points of distinction about it that change in the footprints for example what do you make of that mortimer said that the man had walked on tiptoe down that portion of the alley he only repeated what some fool had said at the inquest why should a man walk on tiptoe down the alley what then he was running watson running desperately running for his life running until he burst his heart and fell dead upon his face running from what there lies our problem there are indications that the man was crazed with fear before he ever began to run how can you say that i am presuming that the cause of his fears came to him across the moor if that was so and it seems most probable only a man who had lost his wits would have run from the house instead of towards it if the gypsy's evidence may be taken as true he ran with cries for help in the direction where help was least likely to be then again whom was he waiting for that night and why was he waiting for him in the yew alley rather than in his own house you think that he was waiting for someone the man was elderly and infirm we can understand his taking an evening stroll but the ground was damp and the night inclement is it natural that he should stand for five or ten minutes as dr mortimer with more practical sense than i should have given him credit for deduced from the cigar ash but he went out every evening i think it unlikely that he waited at the moorgate every evening on the contrary the evidence is that he avoided the moor that night he waited there it was the night before he made his departure for london the thing takes shape watson it becomes coherent might i ask you to hand me my violin and we will postpone all further thought upon this business 
until we have had the advantage of meeting dr mortimer and sir henry baskerville in the morning end of chapter three chapter four of the hound of the baskervilles by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four sir henry baskerville our breakfast table was cleared early and holmes waited in his dressing gown for the promised interview our clients were punctual to their appointment for the clock had just struck ten when dr mortimer was shown up followed by the young baronet the latter was a small alert dark-eyed man about thirty years of age very sturdily built with thick black eyebrows and a strong pugnacious face he wore a ruddy-tinted tweed suit and had the weather-beaten appearance of one who has spent most of his time in the open air and yet there was something in his steady eye and the quiet assurance of his bearing which indicated the gentleman this is sir henry baskerville said dr mortimer why yes said he and the strange thing is mr sherlock holmes that if my friend here had not proposed coming round to you this morning i should have come on my own account i understand that you think out little puzzles and i've had one this morning which wants more thinking out than i am able to give it pray take a seat sir henry do i understand you to say that you have yourself had some remarkable experience since you arrived in london nothing of much importance mr holmes only a joke as like as not it was this letter if you can call it a letter which reached me this morning he laid an envelope upon the table and we all bent over it it was of common quality greyish in colour the address sir henry baskerville northumberland hotel was printed in rough characters the postmark charing cross and the date of posting the preceding evening who knew that you were going to the northumberland hotel asked holmes glancing keenly across at our visitor no one could have known we only decided after i met dr mortimer but dr mortimer was no doubt already stopping there uh, no i had been staying with a friend said the doctor there was no possible indication that we intended to go to this hotel hmm someone seems to be very deeply interested in your movements out of the envelope he took a half sheet of foolscap paper folded into four this he opened and spread flat upon the table across the middle of it a single sentence had been formed by the expedient of pasting printed words upon it it ran as you value your life or your reason keep away from the moor the word moor only was printed in ink now said sir henry baskerville perhaps you will tell me mr holmes what in thunder is the meaning of that and who it is that takes so much interest in my affairs what do you make of it dr mortimer you must allow that there is nothing supernatural about this at any rate no sir but it might very well come from someone who was convinced that the business is supernatural what business asked sir henry sharply it seems to me that all you gentlemen know a great deal more than i do about my own affairs you shall share our knowledge before you leave this room sir henry i promise you that said sherlock holmes we will confine ourselves for the present with your permission 
to this very interesting document which must have been put together and posted yesterday evening have you yesterday's times watson it is here in the corner might i trouble you for it the inside page please with the leading articles he glanced swiftly over it running his eyes up and down the columns capital article this on free trade permit me to give you an extract from it you may be cajoled into imagining that your own special trade or your own industry will be encouraged by a protective tariff but it stands to reason that such legislation must in the long run keep away wealth from the country diminish the value of our imports and lower the general conditions of life in this island what do you think of that watson cried holmes in high glee rubbing his hands together with satisfaction don't you think that is an admirable sentiment dr mortimer looked at holmes with an air of professional interest and sir henry baskerville turned a pair of puzzled dark eyes upon me i don't know much about the tariff and things of that kind said he but it seems to me we've got a bit off the trail so far as that note is concerned on the contrary i think we are particularly hot upon the trail sir henry watson here knows more about my methods than you do but i fear that even he has not quite grasped the significance of this sentence no i confess that i see no connection and yet my dear watson there is so very close a connection that the one is extracted out of the other you your your life reason value keep away from the don't you see now whence these words have been taken by thunder you're right well if that isn't smart cried sir henry if any possible doubt remained it is settled by the fact that keep away and from thee are cut out in one piece well now so it is really mr holmes this exceeds anything which i could have imagined said dr mortimer gazing at my friend in amazement i could understand anyone saying that the words were from a newspaper but that you should name which and add that it came from the leading article is really one of the most remarkable things which i have ever known how did you do it i presume doctor that you could tell the skull of a negro from that of an eskimo most certainly but how because that is my special hobby the differences are obvious the supraorbital crest the facial angle the maxillary curve the but this is my special hobby and the differences are equally obvious there is as much difference to my eyes between the leaded bourgeois type of a times article and the slovenly print of an evening halfpenny paper as there could be between your negro and your eskimo the detection of types is one of the most elementary branches of knowledge to the special expert in crime though i confess that once when i was very young i confused the leeds mercury with the western morning news but a times leader is entirely distinctive and these words could have been taken from nothing else as it was done yesterday the strong probability was that we should find the words in yesterday's issue so far as i can follow you then mr holmes said sir henry baskerville someone cut out this message with a scissors nail scissors said holmes you can see that it was a very short bladed scissors since the cutter had to take two snips over keep away 
that is so someone then cut out the message with a pair of short bladed scissors pasted it with paste gum said holmes with gum onto the paper but i want to know why the word more should have been written because he could not find it in print the other words were all simple and might be found in any issue but more would be less common why of course that would explain it have you read anything else in this message mr holmes there are one or two indications and yet the utmost pains have been taken to remove all clues the address you observe is printed in rough characters but the times is a paper which is seldom found in any hands but those of the highly educated we may take it therefore that the letter was composed by an educated man who wished to pose as an uneducated one and his effort to conceal his own writing suggests that the writing might be known or come to be known by you again you will observe that the words are not gummed on in an accurate line but that some are much higher than others life for example is quite out of its proper place that may point to carelessness or it may point to agitation and hurry upon the part of the cutter on the whole i incline to the latter view since the matter was evidently important and it is unlikely that the composer of such a letter would be careless if he were in a hurry it opens up the interesting question why he should be in a hurry since any letter posted up to early morning would reach sir henry before he would leave his hotel did the composer fear an interruption and from whom we are coming now rather into the region of guesswork said dr mortimer say rather into the region where we balance probabilities and choose the most likely it is the scientific use of the imagination but we have always some material basis on which to start our speculation now you would call it a guess no doubt but i am almost certain that this address has been written in a hotel how in the world can you say that if you examine it carefully you will see that both the pen and the ink have given the writer trouble the pen has spluttered twice in a single word and has run dry three times in a short address showing that there was very little ink in the bottle now a private pen or ink bottle is seldom allowed to be in such a state and the combination of the two must be quite rare but you know the hotel ink and the hotel pen where it is rare to get anything else yes i have very little hesitation in saying that could we examine the waste paper baskets of the hotels round charing cross until we found the remains of the mutilated times leader we could lay our hands straight upon the person who sent this singular message hello hello what's this he was carefully examining the fool's cap upon which the words were pasted holding it only an inch or two from his eyes well nothing said he throwing it down it is a blank half sheet of paper without even a watermark upon it i think we have drawn as much as we can from this curious letter and now sir henry has anything else of interest happened to you since you've been in london why no mr holmes i think not you have not observed anyone follow or watch you i seem to have walked right into the thick of a dime novel said our visitor why in thunder should anyone follow or watch me 
we are coming to that you have nothing else to report to us before we go into this matter well it depends upon what you think worth reporting i think anything out of the ordinary routine of life well worth reporting sir henry smiled i don't know much of british life yet for i've spent nearly all my time in the states and in canada but i hope that to lose one of your boots is not part of the ordinary routine of life over here you have lost one of your boots my dear sir cried dr mortimer it is only mislaid you will find it when you return to the hotel what is the use of troubling mr holmes with trifles of this kind well he asked me for anything outside the extraordinary exactly said holmes however foolish the incident may seem you have lost one of your boots you say well mislaid it anyhow i put them both outside my door last night and there was only one in the morning i could get no sense out of the chap who cleans them the worst of it is that i only bought the pair last night in the strand and i have never had them on if you have never worn them why did you put them out to be cleaned uh, they were tan boots and had never been varnished that was why i put them out then i understand that on your arrival in london yesterday you went out at once and bought a pair of boots i did a great deal of shopping dr mortimer here went round with me you see if i am to be squire down there i must dress the part and it may be that i have got a little careless in my ways out west among other things i bought these brown boots gave six dollars for them and had one stolen before ever i had them on my feet it seems a singularly useless thing to steal said sherlock holmes i confess that i share dr mortimer's belief that it will not be long before the missing boot is found and now gentlemen said the baronet with decision it seems to me that i have spoken quite enough about the little that i know it is time that you kept your promise and gave me a full account of what we are all driving at your request is a very reasonable one holmes answered dr mortimer i think you could not do better than to tell your story as you told it to us thus encouraged our scientific friend drew his papers from his pocket and presented the whole case as he had done upon the morning before sir henry baskerville listened with the deepest attention and with an occasional exclamation of surprise well i seem to have come into an inheritance with a vengeance said he when the long narrative was finished of course i've heard of the hound ever since i was in the nursery it's the pet story of the family though i never thought of taking it seriously before but as to my uncle's death well it all seems boiling up in my head and i can't get it clear yet you don't seem quite to have made up your mind whether it's a case for a policeman or a clergyman precisely and now there's this affair of the letter to me at the hotel i suppose that fits into its place it seems to show that someone knows more than we do about what goes on upon the moor said dr mortimer and also said holmes that someone is not ill disposed towards you since they warn you of danger or it may be that they wish for their own purposes to scare me away well of course that is possible also 
i am very much indebted to you dr mortimer for introducing me to a problem which presents several interesting alternatives but the practical point which we now have to decide sir henry is whether it is or is not advisable for you to go to baskerville hall why should i not go there seems to be danger do you mean danger from this family fiend or do you mean danger from human beings well that is what we have to find out whichever it is my answer is fixed there is no devil in hell mr holmes and there is no man upon earth who can prevent me from going to the home of my own people and you may take that to be my final answer his dark brows knitted and his face flushed to a dusky red as he spoke it was evident that the fiery temper of the baskervilles was not extinct in this their last representative meanwhile said he i have hardly had time to think over all that you've told me it's a big thing for a man to have to understand and to decide at one sitting i should like to have a quiet hour by myself to make up my mind now look here mr holmes it's half past eleven now and i'm going back right away to my hotel suppose you and your friend dr watson come round and lunch with us at two i'll be able to tell you more clearly then how this thing strikes me is that convenient to you watson perfectly then you may expect us shall i have a cab called i'd prefer to walk for this affair has flurried me rather i'll join you in walk with pleasure said his companion then we meet again at two o'clock au revoir and good morning we heard the steps of our visitors descend the stair and the bang of the front door in an instant holmes had changed from the languid dreamer to the man of action your hat and boots watson quick not a moment to lose he rushed into his room in his dressing gown and was back again in a few seconds in a frock coat we hurried together down the stairs and into the street dr mortimer and baskerville were still visible about two hundred yards ahead of us in the direction of oxford street shall i run and stop them not for the world my dear watson i am perfectly satisfied with your company if you will tolerate mine our friends are wise for it is certainly a very fine morning for a walk he quickened his pace until we had decreased the distance which divided us by about half then still keeping a hundred yards behind we followed into oxford street and so down regent street once our friends stopped and stared into a shop window upon which holmes did the same an instant afterwards he gave a little cry of satisfaction and following the direction of his eager eyes i saw that a handsome cab with a man inside which had halted on the other side of the street was now proceeding slowly onward again there's our man watson come along we'll have a good look at him even if we can do no more at that instant i was aware of a bushy black beard and a pair of piercing eyes turned upon us through the side window of the cab instantly the trap door at the top flew up something was screamed to the driver and the cab flew madly off down regent street holmes looked eagerly around for another but no empty one was in sight then he dashed in wild pursuit amid the stream of the traffic but the start was too great and already the cab was out of sight there now said holmes bitterly as he emerged panting and white with vexation from the tide of vehicles 
was ever such bad luck and such bad management too watson watson if you're an honest man you will record this also and set it against my successes who was the man i have not an idea a spy well it was evident from what we have heard that baskerville has been very closely shadowed by someone since he has been in town how else could it be known so quickly that it was the northumberland hotel which he had chosen if they had followed him the first day i argued that they would follow him also the second you may have observed that i twice strolled over to the window while dr mortimer was reading his legend yes i remember i was looking out for loiterers in the street but i saw none we are dealing with a clever man watson this matter cuts very deep and though i have not finally made up my mind whether it is a benevolent or a malevolent agency which is in touch with us i am conscious always of power and design when our friends left i at once followed them in the hopes of marking down their invisible attendant so wily was he that he had not trusted himself upon foot but he had availed himself of a cab so that he could loiter behind or dash past them and so escape their notice his method had the additional advantage that if they were to take a cab he was all ready to follow them it has however one obvious disadvantage it puts him in the power of the cabman exactly what a pity we didn't get the number my dear watson clumsy as i have been you surely do not seriously imagine that i neglected to get the number no two seven zero four is our man but that is no use to us for the moment i fail to see how you could have done more on observing the cab i should have instantly turned and walked in the other direction i should then at my leisure have hired a second cab and followed the first at a respectful distance or better still have driven to the northumberland hotel and waited there when our unknown had followed baskerville home we should have had the opportunity of playing his own game upon himself and seeing where he made for as it is by an indiscreet eagerness which was taken advantage of with extraordinary quickness and energy by our opponent we have betrayed ourselves and lost our man we had been sauntering slowly down regent street during this conversation and dr mortimer with his companion had long vanished in front of us there is no object in our following them said holmes the shadow has departed and will not return we must see what further cards we have in our hands and play them with decision could you swear to that man's face within the cab i could swear only to the beard and so could i from which i gather that in all probability it was a false one a clever man upon so delicate an errand has no use for a beard save to conceal his features come in here watson he turned into one of the district messenger offices where he was warmly greeted by the manager ah wilson i see you have not forgotten the little case in which i had the good fortune to help you no sir indeed i have not you save my good name and perhaps my life my dear fellow you exaggerate i have some recollection wilson that you had among your boys a lad named cartwright who showed some ability during the investigation yes sir he's still with us could you ring him up thank you and i should be glad to have change of this five pound note a lad of fourteen with a bright keen face had obeyed the summons of the manager 
he stood now gazing with great reverence at the famous detective let me have the hotel directory said holmes thank you now cartwright there are the names of twenty-three hotels here all in the immediate neighbourhood of charing cross do you see yes sir you will visit each one of these in turn yes sir you will begin in each case by giving the outside porter one shilling here are twenty-three shillings yes sir you will tell him that you want to see the waste paper of yesterday you will say that an important telegram has miscarried and that you are looking for it you understand yes sir but what you're really looking for is the center page of the times with some holes cut in it with scissors here is a copy of the times it is this page you could easily recognize it could you not yes sir in each case the outside porter will send for the hall porter to whom also you will give a shilling here are 23 shillings you will then learn in possibly 20 cases out of the 23 that the waste of the day before has been burned or removed in the three other cases you will be shown a heap of paper and you will look for this page of the times among it the odds are enormously against your finding it there are ten shillings over in case of emergencies let me have a report by wire at baker street before evening and now watson it only remains for us to find out by wire the identity of the cabman number two seven zero four and then we will drop into one of the bond street picture galleries and fill in the time until we are due at the hotel end of chapter four When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 5 of The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Three Broken Threads. Sherlock Holmes had, in a very remarkable degree, the power of detaching his mind at will. For two hours, the strange business in which we had been involved appeared to be forgotten, and he was entirely absorbed in the pictures of the modern Belgian masters. He would talk of nothing but art of which he had the crudest ideas from our leaving the gallery until we found ourselves at the northumberland hotel sir henry baskerville is upstairs expecting you said the clerk he asked me to show you up at once when you came have you any objection to my looking at your register said holmes not in the least the books show that two names have been added after that of baskerville one was theophilus johnson and family of newcastle the other mrs oldmore and maid of high lodge alton surely that must be the same johnson whom i used to know said holmes to the porter a lawyer is he not gray-haired and walks with a limp no sir this is mr johnson the coal owner a very active gentleman not older than yourself surely you're mistaken about his trade 
no sir he has used this hotel for many years and he is very well known to us ah that settles it mrs oldmore too i seem to remember the name excuse my curiosity but often in calling upon one friend one finds another she is an invalid lady sir her husband was once mayor of gloucester she always comes to us when she's in town thank you i'm afraid i cannot claim her acquaintance we have established a most important fact by these questions watson he continued in a low voice as we went upstairs together we know now that the people who are so interested in our friend have not settled down in his own hotel that means that while they are as we have seen very anxious to watch him they are equally anxious that he should not see them now this is a most suggestive fact what does it suggest it suggests hello my dear fellow what on earth is the matter as we came round the top of the stairs we'd run up against sir henry baskerville himself his face was flushed with anger and he held an old and dusty boot in one of his hands so furious was he that he was hardly articulate and when he did speak it was in a much broader and more western dialect than any which we had heard from him in the morning seems to me they are playing me for a sucker in this hotel he cried they'll find they've started into monkey with the wrong man unless they are careful by thunder if that chap can't find my missing boot there'll be trouble i can take a joke with the best mr holmes but they've got a bit over the mark this time still looking for your boot yes sir and mean to find it but surely you said that it was a new brown boot so it was sir and now it's an old black one what you don't mean to say that's just what i do mean to say i only had three pairs in the world the new brown the old black and the patent leathers which i'm wearing last night they took one of my brown ones and today they have sneaked one of the black well have you got it speak out man and don't stand staring an agitated german waiter had appeared upon the scene no sir i have made inquiry all over the hotel but i can hear no word of it well either that boot comes back before sundown or i'll see the manager and tell him that i go right straight out of this hotel it shall be found sir i promise you that if you'll have a little patience it will be found mind it is for it's the last thing of mine that i'll lose in this den of thieves well well mr holmes you'll excuse my troubling you about such a trifle i think it's well worth troubling about why you look very serious over it how do you explain it i just don't attempt to explain it it seems the very maddest queerest thing that ever happened to me the queerest perhaps said holmes thoughtfully what do you make of it yourself well i don't profess to understand it yet this case of yours is very complex sir henry when taken in conjunction with your uncle's death i am not sure that all the five hundred cases of capital importance which i have handled there is one which cuts so deep but we hold several threads in our hands and the odds are that one or other of them guides us to the truth we may waste time in following the wrong one but sooner or later we must come upon the right we had a pleasant luncheon in which little was said of the business which had brought us together it was in the private sitting-room to which we afterwards repaired 
that Holmes asked Baskerville what were his intentions. "'To go to Baskerville Hall.' "'And when?' "'At the end of the week.' "'On the whole,' said Holmes, "'I think that your decision is a wise one. "'I have ample evidence that you are being dogged in London, "'and amid the millions of this great city "'it is difficult to discover who these people are "'or what their object can be. "'If their intentions are evil, "'they might do you mischief, "'and we should be powerless to prevent it. "'You did not know, Dr. Mortimer,' that you were followed this morning from my house dr mortimer started violently followed by whom that unfortunately is what i cannot tell you have you among your neighbours or acquaintances on dartmoor any man with a black full beard no or let me see why yes barrymore sir charles's butler is a man with a full black beard Ha. Huh where is barrymore he is in charge of the hall we had best ascertain if he is really there or if by any possibility he might be in london how can you do that give me a telegraph form is all ready for sir henry that will do addressed to mr barrymore baskerville hall what is the nearest telegraph office grimpen very good we will send a second wire to the postmaster grimpen telegram to mr barrymore to be delivered into his own hand if absent please return wire to sir henry baskerville northumberland hotel that should let us know before evening whether barrymore is at his post in devonshire or not that's so said baskerville by the way dr mortimer who is this barrymore anyhow he is the son of the old caretaker who is dead they have looked after the hall for four generations now so far as i know he and his wife are as respectable a couple as any in the county at the same time said baskerville it's clear enough that so long as there are none of the family at the hall these people have a mighty fine home and nothing to do that is true did barrymore profit at all by sir charles's will asked holmes he and his wife had five hundred pounds each ha huh. did they know that they would receive this yes sir charles was very fond of talking about the provisions of his will that is very interesting i hope said dr mortimer that you do not look with suspicious eyes upon everyone who received a legacy from sir charles for i also had a thousand pounds left to me indeed and anyone else there were many insignificant sums to individuals and a large number of public charities the residue all went to sir henry and how much was the residue seven hundred and forty thousand pounds holmes raised his eyebrows in surprise i had no idea that so gigantic a sum was involved said he sir charles had the reputation of being rich but we did not know how very rich he was until we came to examine his securities the total value of the estate was close on to a million dear me it is a stake for which a man might well play a desperate game and one more question dr mortimer supposing that anything happened to our young friend here you'll forgive the unpleasant hypothesis who would inherit the estate since roger baskerville 
sir charles's youngest brother died unmarried the estate would descend to the desmonds who are distant cousins james desmond is an elderly clergyman in westmoreland thank you these details are all of great interest have you met mr james desmond yes he once came down to visit sir charles he is a man of venerable appearance and of saintly life i remember that he refused to accept any settlement from sir charles though he pressed it upon him and this man of simple tastes would be the heir to sir charles's thousands he would be the heir to the estate because that is entailed he would also be the heir to the money unless it were willed otherwise by the present owner who can of course do what he likes with it and have you made your will sir henry no mr holmes i have not i have had no time for it was only yesterday that i learned how matters stood but in any case i feel that the money should go with the title and estate that was my poor uncle's idea how is the owner going to restore the glories of the baskervilles if he has not money enough to keep up the property house land and dollars must go together quite so well sir henry i am of one mind with you as to the advisability of you going down to devonshire without delay there is only one provision which i must make you certainly must not go alone dr mortimer returns with me but dr mortimer has his practice to attend to and his house is miles away from yours with all the goodwill in the world he may be unable to help you no sir henry you must take with you someone a trusty man who will be always by your side is it possible that you could come yourself mr holmes if matters came to a crisis i should endeavor to be present in person but you can understand that with my extensive consulting practice and with the constant appeals which reach me from many quarters it is impossible for me to be absent from london for an indefinite time at the present instant one of the most revered names in england is being besmirched by a blackmailer and only i can stop a disastrous scandal you will see how impossible it is for me to go to dartmoor whom would you recommend then holmes laid his hand upon my arm if my friend would undertake it there is no man who is better worth having at your side when you're in a tight place no one can say more confidently than i the proposition took me completely by surprise but before i had time to answer baskerville seized me by the hand and wrung it heartily well now that is real kind of you dr watson said he you see how it is with me and you know just as much about the matter as i do if you will come down to baskerville hall and see me through i'll never forget it the promise of adventure had always a fascination for me and i was complimented by the words of holmes and by the eagerness with which the baronet hailed me as a companion i'll come with pleasure said i i do not know how i could employ my time better and you will report very carefully to me said holmes when a crisis comes as it will do i will direct how you shall act i suppose that by saturday all might be ready would that suit dr watson perfectly then on saturday unless you hear to the contrary we shall meet at the ten thirty train from paddington we had risen to depart when baskerville gave a cry of triumph and diving into one of the corners of the room he drew a brown boot from under a cabinet my missing boot 
he cried may all our difficulties vanish as easily said sherlock holmes but it is a very singular thing dr mortimer remarked i searched this room carefully before lunch and so did i said baskerville every inch of it there was certainly no boot in it then in that case the waiter must have placed it there while we were lunching the german was sent for but professed to know nothing of the matter nor could any inquiry clear it up another item had been added to that constant and apparently purposeless series of small mysteries which had succeeded each other so rapidly setting aside the whole grim story of sir charles's death we had a line of inexplicable incidents all within the limits of two days which included the receipt of the printed letter the black-bearded spy in the hansom the loss of the new brown boot the loss of the old black boot and now the return of the new brown boot holmes sat in silence in the cab as we drove back to baker street and i knew from his drawn brows and keen face that his mind like my own was busy in endeavouring to frame some scheme into which all these strange and apparently disconnected episodes could be fitted all afternoon and late into the evening he sat lost in tobacco and thought just before dinner two telegrams were handed in the first ran have just heard that barrymore is at the hall baskerville the second visited twenty-three hotels as directed but sorry to report unable to trace cut sheet of times cartwright there go two of my threads watson there is nothing more stimulating than a case where everything goes against you we must cast around for another scent we still have the cabman who drove the spy exactly i have wired to get his name and address from the official registry i should not be surprised if this were an answer to my question the ring at the bell proved to be something even more satisfactory than an answer however for the door opened and a rough-looking fellow entered who was evidently the man himself i got a message from the head office that a gent at this address had been inquiring for number twenty seven o four said he i've driven my cab this seven years and never a word of complaint i came here straight from the yard to ask you to your face what you had against me i have nothing in the world against you my good man said holmes on the contrary i have half a sovereign for you if you will give me a clear answer to my questions well i've had a good day and no mistake said the cabman with a grin what was it you wanted to ask sir first of all your name and address in case i want you again john clayton three turpy street the borough my cab is out of shipley's yard near waterloo station sherlock holmes made a note of it now clayton tell me all about the fair who came and watched this house at ten o'clock this morning and afterwards followed the two gentlemen down regent street the man looked surprised and a little embarrassed why there's no good my telling you things for you seem to know as much as i do already said he the truth is that the gentleman told me that he was a detective and i was to say nothing about him to anyone my good fellow this is a very serious business and you may find yourself in a pretty bad position if you try to hide anything from me you say that your fare told you that he was a detective yes he did 
when did he say this when he left me did he say anything more he mentioned his name holmes cast a swift glance of triumph at me oh he mentioned his name did he that was imprudent what was the name that he mentioned his name said the cabman was mr sherlock holmes never have i seen my friend more completely taken aback than by the cabman's reply for an instant he sat in silent amazement then he burst into a hearty laugh a touch watson an undeniable touch said he i feel a foil as quick and supple as my own he got home upon me very prettily that time so his name was sherlock holmes was it yes sir that was the gentleman's name excellent tell me where you picked him up and all that occurred he hailed me at half-past nine in trafalgar square he said that he was a detective and he offered me two guineas if i would do exactly what he wanted all day and ask no questions i was glad enough to agree first we drove down to the northumberland hotel and waited there until two gentlemen came out and took a cab from the rank we followed their cab until it pulled up somewhere near here this very door said holmes well i couldn't be sure of that but i dare say my fare knew all about it we pulled up halfway down the street and waited an hour and a half then the two gentlemen passed us walking and we followed down baker street and along i know said holmes until we got three quarters down regent street and my gentleman threw up the trap and he cried that i should drive right away to waterloo station as hard as i could go i whipped up the mare and we were there under the ten minutes and he paid up his two guineas like a good one and away he went into the station only just as he was leaving he turned round and he said it might interest you to know that you've been driving mr sherlock holmes that's how i came to know the name i see and you saw no more of him not after he went into the station and how would you describe mr sherlock holmes the cabman scratched his head well he wasn't altogether such an easy gentleman to describe i put him at forty years of age and he was of a middle height two or three inches shorter than you sir he was dressed like a toff and he had a black beard cut square at the end and a pale face i don't know as i could say any more than that color of his eyes no i can't say that nothing more that you can remember no sir nothing well then here is your half sovereign there's another one waiting for you if you can bring any more information good night good night sir and thank you john clayton departed chuckling and holmes turned to me with a shrug of his shoulders and a rueful smile snap goes our third thread and we end where we began said he the cunning rascal he knew our number knew that sir henry baskerville had consulted me spotted who i was in regent street conjectured that i had got the number of the cab and would lay my hands on the driver and so sent back this audacious message i tell you watson this time we have got a foeman who is worthy of our steel i've been checkmated in london i can only wish you better luck in devonshire but i'm not easy in my mind about it about what about sending you it's an ugly business watson an ugly dangerous business 
and the more i see of it the less i like it yes my dear fellow you may laugh but i give you my word that i shall be very glad to have you back safe and sound in baker street once more end of chapter five Chapter Six of the Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Baskerville Hall. Sir Henry Baskerville and Doctor Mortimer were ready upon the appointed day, and we started as arranged for Devonshire. Mister Sherlock Holmes drove with me to the station, and gave me his last parting injunctions and advice. "'I will not bias your mind by suggesting theories or suspicions, Watson,' said he. "'I wish you simply to report facts in the fullest possible manner to me, "'and you can leave me to do the theorising.' "'What sort of facts?' I asked. "'Anything which may seem to have a bearing, however indirect, upon the case, "'and especially the relations between young Baskerville and his neighbours, "'or any fresh particulars concerning the death of Sir Charles.' I have made some inquiries myself in the last few days, but the results have, I fear, been negative. One thing only appears to be certain, and that is that Mr. James Desmond, who is the next heir, is an elderly gentleman of a very amiable disposition, so that this persecution does not arise from him. I really think that we may eliminate him entirely from our calculations. There remain the people who will actually surround Sir Henry Baskerville upon the moor. "'Would it not be well in the first place to get rid of this Barrymore couple?' "'By no means. You could not make a greater mistake. "'If they are innocent, it will be a cruel injustice, "'and if they are guilty, we should be giving up all chance of bringing it home to them. "'No, no. We will preserve them upon our list of suspects. "'Then there is a groom at the hall, if I remember right. "'There are two moorland farmers. There is our friend Dr. Mortimer.' whom i believe to be entirely honest and there is his wife of whom we know nothing there is this naturalist stapleton and there is his sister who is said to be a young lady of attractions there is mr frankland of laughter hall who is also an unknown factor and there are one or two other neighbors these are the folk who must be your very special study i'll do my best you have arms i suppose yes i thought it as well to take them most certainly keep your revolver near you night and day and never relax your precautions our friends had already secured a first-class carriage and were waiting for us upon the platform no we have no news of any kind said dr mortimer in answer to my friend's questions i can swear to one thing and that is that we have not been shadowed during the last two days we have never gone out without keeping a sharp watch and no one could have escaped our notice you have always kept together i presume except yesterday afternoon i usually give up one day to pure amusement when i come to town so i spent it at the museum of the college of surgeons and i went to look at the folk in the park said baskerville but we had no trouble of any kind it was imprudent all the same said holmes shaking his head and looking very grave I beg Sir Henry that you will not go about alone. Some great misfortune will befall you if you do. Did you get your other boot? No, sir. It is gone forever. Indeed. 
that is very interesting well good-bye he added as the train began to glide down the platform bear in mind sir henry one of the phrases in that queer old legend which dr mortimer has read to us and avoid the moor in those hours of darkness when the powers of evil are exalted i looked back at the platform when we had left it far behind and saw the tall austere figure of holmes standing motionless and gazing after us the journey was a swift and pleasant one and i spent it in making the more intimate acquaintance of my two companions and in playing with dr mortimer's spaniel in a very few hours the brown earth had become ruddy the brick had changed to granite and red cows grazed in well-hedged fields where the lush grasses and more luxuriant vegetation spoke of a richer if a damper climate young baskerville stared eagerly out of the window and cried aloud with delight as he recognized the familiar features of the devon scenery i've been over a good part of the world since i left it dr watson said he but i've never seen a place to compare with it i never saw a devonshire man who did not swear by his county i remarked it depends upon the breed of men quite as much as on the county said dr mortimer a glance at our friend here reveals the rounded head of the celt which carries inside it the celtic enthusiasm and power of attachment poor sir charles's head was of a very rare type half gaelic half ivernian in its characteristics but you were very young when you last saw baskerville hall were you not i was a boy in my teens at the time of my father's death and had never seen the hall for he lived in a little cottage on the south coast thence i went straight to a friend in america i tell you it is all as new to me as it is to dr watson and i'm as keen as possible to see the moor are you then your wish is easily granted for there is your first sight of the moor said dr mortimer pointing out of the carriage window over the green squares of the fields and the low curve of a wood there rose in the distance a grey melancholy hill with a strange jagged summit dim and vague in the distance like some fantastic landscape in a dream baskerville sat for a long time his eyes fixed upon it and i read upon his eager face how much it meant to him this first sight of that strange spot where the men of his blood had held sway so long and left their mark so deep there he sat with his tweed suit in the corner of a prosaic railway carriage and yet as i looked at his dark and expressive face i felt more than ever how true a descendant he was of that long line of high-blooded fiery and masterful men there were pride valor and strength in his thick brows his sensitive nostrils and his large hazel eyes if on that forbidding moor a difficult and dangerous quest should lie before us this was at least a comrade for whom one might venture to take a risk with the certainty that he would bravely share it the train pulled up at a small wayside station and we all descended outside beyond the low white fence a wagonette with a pair of cobs was waiting our coming was evidently a great event for station master and porters clustered round us to carry out our luggage it was a sweet simple country spot but i was surprised to observe that by the gate there stood two soldierly men in dark uniforms who leaned upon their short rifles and glanced keenly at us as we passed the coachman a hard-faced gnarled little fellow saluted sir henry baskerville 
and in a few minutes we were flying swiftly down the broad white road rolling pasture lands curved upward on either side of us and old gabled houses peeped out from amid the thick green foliage but behind the peaceful and sunlit countryside there rose ever dark against the evening sky the long gloomy curve of the moor broken by the jagged and sinister hills the wagonette swung round into a side road and we curved upward through deep lanes worn by centuries of wheels high banks on either side heavy with dripping moss and fleshy hart's tongue ferns bronzing bracken and mottled bramble gleamed in the light of the sinking sun still steadily rising we passed over a narrow granite bridge and skirted a noisy stream which gushed swiftly down foaming and roaring amid the gray boulders both road and stream wound up through a valley dense with scrub oak and fir at every turn baskerville gave an exclamation of delight looking eagerly about him and asking countless questions to his eyes all seemed beautiful but to me a tinge of melancholy lay upon the countryside which bore so clearly the mark of the waning year yellow leaves carpeted the lanes and fluttered down upon us as we passed the rattle of our wheels died away as we drove through drifts of rotting vegetation sad gifts as it seemed to me for nature to throw before the carriage of the returning heir of the baskervilles hello cried dr mortimer what is this a steep curve of heath-clad land an outlying spur of the moor lay in front of us on the summit hard and clear like an equestrian statue upon its pedestal was a mounted soldier dark and stern his rifle poised ready over his forearm he was watching the road along which we travelled what is this perkins asked dr mortimer our driver half turned in his seat here's a convict escaped from princetown sir he's been out here three days now and the warders watch every road and every station but they've had no sight of him yet the farmers about here don't like it sir and that's a fact well i understand that they get five pounds if they can give information yes sir but the chance of five pounds is but a poor thing compared to the chance of having your throat cut you see it isn't like any ordinary convict this is a man who would stick at nothing who is he then it is selden the notting hill murderer i remembered the case well for it was one in which holmes had taken an interest on account of the peculiar ferocity of the crime and the wanton brutality which had marked all the actions of the assassin the commutation of his death sentence had been due to some doubts as to his complete sanity so atrocious was his conduct our wagonette had topped a rise and in front of us rose the huge expanse of the moor mottled with gnarled and craggy cairns and tors a cold wind swept down from it and set us shivering somewhere there on that desolate plain was lurking this fiendish man hiding in a burrow like a wild beast his heart full of malignancy against the whole race which had cast him out it needed but this to complete the grim suggestiveness of the barren waste the chilling wind and the darkling sky even baskerville fell silent and pulled his overcoat more closely around him we had left the fertile country behind and beneath us we looked back on it now the slanting rays of a low sun 
turning the streams to threads of gold and glowing on the red earth new turned by the plough and the broad tangle of the woodlands the road in front of us grew bleaker and wilder over huge russet and olive slopes sprinkled with giant boulders now and then we passed a moorland cottage walled and roofed with stone with no creeper to break its harsh outline suddenly we looked down into a cup-like depression patched with stunted oaks and firs which had been twisted and bent by the fury of years of storm two high narrow towers rose over the trees the driver pointed with his whip baskerville hall said he its master had risen and was staring with flushed cheeks and shining eyes a few minutes later we had reached the lodge gates a maze of fantastic tracery in wrought iron with weather-bitten pillars on either side blotched with lichens and surmounted by the boar's heads of the baskervilles the lodge was a ruin of black granite and bared ribs of rafters but facing it was a new building half constructed the first fruit of sir charles's south african gold through the gateway we passed into the avenue where the wheels were again hushed amid the leaves and the old trees shot their branches in a sombre tunnel over our heads baskerville shuddered as we looked up the long dark drive to where the house glimmered like a ghost at the farther end was it here he asked in a low voice no no the yew alley is on the other side the young heir glanced round with a gloomy face it's no wonder my uncle felt as if trouble were coming on him in such a place as this said he it's enough to scare any man i'll have a row of electric lamps up here inside of six months and you won't know it again with a thousand candle power swan and edison right here in front of the hall door the avenue opened into a broad expanse of turf and the house lay before us in the fading light i could see that the centre was a heavy block of building from which a porch projected the whole front was draped in ivy with a patch clipped bare here and there where a window or a coat of arms broke through the dark veil from this central block rose the twin towers ancient crenellated and pierced with many loopholes to right and left of the turrets were more modern wings of black granite a dull light shone through heavy mullioned windows and from the high chimneys which rose from the steep high-angled roof there sprang a single black column of smoke welcome sir henry welcome to baskerville hall a tall man had stepped from the shadow of the porch to open the door of the wagonette the figure of a woman was silhouetted against the yellow light of the hall she came out and helped the man to hand down our bags you don't mind my driving straight home sir henry said dr mortimer my wife is expecting me surely you'll stay and have some dinner no i must go i shall probably find some work awaiting me i would stay to show you over the house but barrymore will be a better guide than i good-bye and never hesitate night or day to send for me if i can be of service the wheels died away down the drive while sir henry and i turned into the hall and the door clanged heavily behind us it was a fine apartment in which we found ourselves large lofty and heavily raftered with huge balks of age blackened oak in the great old-fashioned fireplace behind the high iron dogs a log fire crackled and snapped 
sir henry and i held out our hands to it for we were numb from our long drive then we gazed round us at the high thin window of old stained glass the oak panelling the stag's heads the coats of arms upon the walls all dim and sombre in the subdued light of the central lamp it's just as i imagined it said sir henry is it not the very picture of an old family home to think that this should be the same hall in which for five hundred years my people have lived it strikes me solemn to think of it i saw his dark face lit up with a boyish enthusiasm as he gazed about him the light beat upon him where he stood but long shadows trailed down the walls and hung like a black canopy above him barrymore had returned from taking our luggage to our rooms he stood in front of us now with the subdued manner of a well-trained servant he was a remarkable-looking man tall handsome with a square black beard and pale distinguished features would you wish dinner to be served at once sir is it ready in a few minutes sir you will find hot water in your rooms my wife and i will be happy sir henry to stay with you until you've made your fresh arrangements but you will understand that under the new conditions this house will require a considerable staff what new conditions i only meant it sir that sir charles led a very retired life and we were able to look after his wants you would naturally wish to have more company and so you will need changes in your household do you mean that your wife and you wish to leave only when it's quite convenient to you sir but your family have been with us for several generations have they not i should be sorry to begin my life here by breaking an old family connection i seemed to discern some signs of emotion upon the butler's white face i feel that also sir and so does my wife but to tell the truth sir we were both very much attached to sir charles and his death gave us a shock and made these surroundings very painful to us i fear that we shall never again be easy in our minds at baskerville hall but what do you intend to do i have no doubt sir that we shall succeed in establishing ourselves in some business sir charles's generosity has given us the means to do so and now sir perhaps i'd best show you to your rooms a square balustraded gallery ran round the top of the old hall approached by a double stair from this central point two long corridors extended the whole length of the building from which all the bedrooms opened my own was in the same wing as baskerville's and almost next door to it these rooms appeared to be much more modern than the central part of the house and the bright paper and numerous candles did something to remove the sombre impression which our arrival had left upon my mind but the dining-room which opened out of the hall was a place of shadow and gloom it was a long chamber with a step separating the dais where the family sat from the lower portion reserved for their dependents at one end a minstrel's gallery overlooked it black beams shot across above our heads with a smoke-darkened ceiling beyond them with rows of flaring torches to light it up and the colour and rude hilarity of an old-time banquet it might have softened but now when two black-clothed gentlemen sat in the little circle of light thrown by a shaded lamp one's voice became hushed and one's spirit subdued 
a dim line of ancestors in every variety of dress from the elizabethan knight to the buck of the regency stared down upon us and daunted us by their silent company we talked little and i for one was glad when the meal was over and we were able to retire into the modern billiard-room and smoke a cigarette my word it isn't a very cheerful place said sir henry i suppose one can tone down to it but i feel a bit out of the picture at present i don't mind that my uncle got a little jumpy if he lived all alone in such a house as this however if it suits you we will retire early to-night and perhaps things may seem more cheerful in the morning i drew aside my curtains before i went to bed and looked out from my window it opened up upon the grassy space which lay in front of the hall door beyond two copses of trees moaned and swung in a rising wind a half-moon broke through the rifts of racing clouds in its cold light i saw beyond the trees a broken fringe of rocks and the long low curve of the melancholy moor i closed the curtain feeling that my last impression was in keeping with the rest and yet it was not quite the last i found myself weary and yet wakeful tossing restlessly from side to side seeking for the sleep which would not come far away a chiming clock struck out the quarters of the hours but otherwise a deathly silence lay upon the old house and then suddenly in the very dead of night there came a sound to my ears clear resonant and unmistakable it was the sob of a woman the muffled strangling gasp of one who is torn by an uncontrollable sorrow i sat up in bed and listened intently the noise could not have been far away and was certainly in the house for half an hour i waited with every nerve on the alert but there came no other sound save the chiming clock and the rustle of the ivy on the wall end of chapter 6「The Stapletons of Merripit House」The fresh beauty of the following morning did something to efface from our minds the grim and grey impression which had been left upon both of us by our first experience of Baskerville Hall as sir henry and i sat at breakfast the sunlight flooded in through the high mullioned windows throwing watery patches of colour from the coats of arms which covered them the dark panelling glowed like bronze in the golden rays and it was hard to realise that this was indeed the chamber which had struck such a gloom into our souls upon the evening before i guess it is ourselves and not the house that we have to blame said the baronet we were tired with our journey and chilled by our drive so we took a grey view of the place now we are fresh and well so it is all cheerful once more and yet it was not entirely a question of imagination i answered did you for example happen to hear someone a woman i think sobbing in the night that is curious for i did when i was half asleep fancy that i heard something of the sort i waited quite a time but there was no more of it so i concluded that it was all a dream i heard it distinctly and i am sure that it was really the sob of a woman we must ask about it right away 
he rang the bell and asked barrymore whether he could account for our experience it seemed to me that the pallid features of the butler turned a shade paler still as he listened to his master's question there are only two women in the house sir henry he answered one is the scullery maid who sleeps in the other wing the other is my wife and i can answer for it that the sound could not have come from her and yet he lied as he said it for it chanced that after breakfast i met mrs barrymore in the long corridor with the sun full upon her face she was a large impassive heavy-featured woman with a stern set expression of mouth but her tell-tale eyes were red and glanced at me from between swollen lids it was she then who wept in the night and if she did so her husband must know it yet he had taken the obvious risk of discovery in declaring that it was not so why had he done this and why did she weep so bitterly already round this pale-faced handsome black-bearded man there was gathering an atmosphere of mystery and of gloom it was he who had been the first to discover the body of sir charles and we had only his word for all the circumstances which led up to the old man's death was it possible that it was barrymore after all whom we had seen in the cab in regent street the beard might well have been the same the cabman had described a somewhat shorter man but such an impression might easily have been erroneous how could i settle the point forever obviously the first thing to do was to see the grimpen postmaster and find whether the test telegram had really been placed in barrymore's own hands be the answer what it might i should at least have something to report to sherlock holmes sir henry had numerous papers to examine after breakfast so that the time was propitious for my excursion it was a pleasant walk of four miles along the edge of the moor leading me at last to a small grey hamlet in which two larger buildings which proved to be the inn and the house of dr mortimer stood high above the rest the postmaster who was also the village grocer had a clear recollection of the telegram certainly sir said he i had the telegram delivered to mr barrymore exactly as directed who delivered it my boy here james you delivered that telegram to mr barrymore at the hall last week did you not yes father i delivered it into his own hands i asked well he was up in the loft at the time so that he could not put into his own hands but i give it into mrs barrymore's hands and she promised to deliver it at once did you see mr barrymore no sir i tell you he was in the loft if you didn't see him how do you know he was in the loft well surely his own wife ought to know where he is said the postmaster testily didn't he get the telegram if there's any mistake it is for mr barrymore himself to complain it seemed hopeless to pursue the inquiry any farther but it was clear that in spite of holmes's ruse we had no proof that barrymore had not been in london all the time suppose that it were so suppose that the same man had been the last who had seen sir charles alive and the first to dog the new heir when he returned to england what then was he the agent of others or had he some sinister design of his own what interest could he have in persecuting the baskerville family i thought of the strange warning clipped out of the leading article of the times was that his work or was it possibly the doing of someone who was bent upon counteracting his schemes 
the only conceivable motive was that which had been suggested by sir henry that if the family could be scared away a comfortable and permanent home would be secured for the barrymores but surely such an explanation as that would be quite inadequate to account for the deep and subtle scheming which seemed to be weaving an invisible net around the young baronet holmes himself had said that no more complex case had come to him in all the long series of his sensational investigations i prayed as i walked back along the grey lonely road that my friend might soon be freed from his preoccupations and able to come down to take his heavy burden of responsibility from my shoulders suddenly my thoughts were interrupted by the sound of running feet behind me and by a voice which called me by name i turned expecting to see dr mortimer but to my surprise it was a stranger who was pursuing me he was a small slim clean-shaven prim-faced man flaxen-haired and lean-jawed between thirty and forty years of age dressed in a grey suit and wearing a straw hat a tin box for botanical specimens hung over his shoulder and he carried a green butterfly net in one of his hands you will i am sure excuse my presumption dr watson said he as he came panting up to where i stood here on the moor we are a homely folk and do not wait for formal introductions you may possibly have heard my name from our mutual friend mortimer i am stapleton of merripit house your net and box would have told me as much said i for i knew that mr stapleton was a naturalist but how did you know me i have been calling on mortimer and he pointed you out to me from the window of his surgery as you passed as our road lay the same way i thought that i could overtake you and introduce myself i trust that sir henry is none the worse for his journey he's very well thank you we were all rather afraid that after the sad death of sir charles the new baronet might refuse to live here it is asking much of a wealthy man to come down and bury himself in a place of this kind but i need not tell you that it means a very great deal to the countryside sir henry has i suppose no superstitious fears in the matter i do not think that it is likely of course you know the legend of the fiend dog which haunts the family i have heard of it it is extraordinary how credulous the pheasants are about here any number of them are ready to swear that they have seen such a creature upon the moor he spoke with a smile but i seemed to read in his eyes that he took the matter more seriously the story took a great hold upon the imagination of sir charles and i have no doubt that it led to his tragic end but how his nerves were so worked up that the appearance of any dog might have had a fatal effect upon his diseased heart i fancy that he really did see something of the kind upon that last night in the yew alley i feared that some disaster might occur for i was very fond of the old man and i knew that his heart was weak how did you know that my friend mortimer told me you think then that some dog pursued sir charles and that he died of fright in consequence have you any better explanation i have not come to any conclusion has mr sherlock holmes the words took away my breath for an instant 
but a glance at the placid face and steadfast eyes of my companion showed that no surprise was intended it is useless for us to pretend that we do not know you dr watson said he the records of your detective have reached us here and you could not celebrate him without being known yourself when mortimer told me your name he could not deny your identity if you are here then it follows that mr sherlock holmes is interesting himself in the matter and i am naturally curious to know what view he may take i am afraid that i cannot answer that question may i ask him if he is going to honour us with a visit himself he cannot leave town at present he has other cases which engage his attention what a pity he might throw some light on that which is so dark to us but as to your own researches if there is any possible way in which i can be of service to you i trust that you will command me if i had any indication of the nature of your suspicions or how you propose to investigate the case i might perhaps even now give you some aid or advice i assure you that i am simply here upon a visit to my friend sir henry and that i need no help of any kind excellent said stapleton you are perfectly right to be wary and discreet i am justly reproved for what i feel was an unjustifiable intrusion and i promise you that i will not mention the matter again we had come to a point where a narrow grassy path struck off from the road and wound away across the moor a steep boulder sprinkled hill lay upon the right which had in bygone days been cut into a granite quarry the face which was turned towards us formed a dark cliff with ferns and brambles growing in its niches from over a distant rise there floated a grey plume of smoke a moderate walk along this moor path brings us to merripit house said he perhaps you will spare an hour that i may have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister my first thought was that i should be by sir henry's side but then i remembered the pile of papers and bills with which his study table was littered it was certain that i could not help with those and holmes had expressly said that i should study the neighbours upon the moor i accepted stapleton's invitation and we turned together down the path it is a wonderful place the moor said he looking round over the undulating downs long green rollers with crests of jagged granite foaming up into fantastic surges you never tire of the moor you cannot think the wonderful secrets which it contains it is so vast and so barren and so mysterious you know it well then i have only been here two years the residents would call me a newcomer we came shortly after sir charles settled but my tastes led me to explore every part of the country round and i should think that there are few men who know it better than i do is it hard to know very hard you see for example this great plain to the north here with the queer hills breaking out of it do you observe anything remarkable about that it would be a rare place for a gallop you would naturally think so and the thought has cost several their lives before now you notice those bright green spots scattered thickly over it yes they seem more fertile than the rest 
stapleton laughed ah, that is the great grimpen mire said he a false step yonder means death to man or beast only yesterday i saw one of the moor ponies wander into it me never came out i saw his head for quite a long time craning out of the bog hole but it sucked him down at last even in dry seasons it is a danger to cross it but after these autumn rains it is an awful place and yet i can find my way to the very heart of it and return alive by george there's another of those miserable ponies something brown was rolling and tossing among the green sedges then a long agonized writhing neck shot upward and a dreadful cry echoed over the moor it turned me cold with horror but my companion's nerves seemed to be stronger than mine it's gone said he the mire has him two in two days and many more perhaps for they get in the way of going there in the dry weather and never know the difference until the mire has them in its clutches it's a bad place the great grimpen mire and you say you can penetrate it yes there are one or two paths which a very active man can take i have found them out but why should you wish to go into so horrible a place well you see the hills beyond they are really islands cut off on all sides by the impassable mire which has crawled round them in the course of years that is where the rare plants and the butterflies are if you have the wit to reach them i shall try my luck some day he looked at me with a surprised face for god's sake put such an idea out of your mind said he your blood would be upon my head i assure you that there would not be the least chance of your coming back alive it is only by remembering certain complex landmarks that i am able to do it hello i cried what is that a long low moan indescribably sad swept over the moor it filled the whole air and yet it was impossible to say whence it came from a dull murmur it swelled into a deep roar and then sank back into a melancholy throbbing murmur once again stapleton looked at me with a curious expression in his face queer place the moor said he but what is it the peasants say it is the hound of the baskervilles calling for its prey i've heard it once or twice before but never quite so loud i looked round with a chill of fear in my heart at the huge swelling plain mottled with the green patches of rushes nothing stirred over the vast expanse save a pair of ravens which croaked loudly from a tour behind us you are an educated man you don't believe such nonsense as that said i what do you think is the cause of so strange a sound bogs make queer noises sometimes it's the mud settling or the water rising or something no no that was a living voice well perhaps it was did you ever hear a bittern booming no i never did it is a very rare bird practically extinct in england now but all things are possible upon the moor yes i should not be surprised to learn that what we have heard is the cry of the last of the bitterns 
it's the weirdest strangest thing that ever i heard in my life yes it's rather an uncanny place altogether look at the hillside yonder what do you make of those the whole steep slope was covered with grey circular rings of stone a score of them at least what are they sheep pens no they are the homes of our worthy ancestors prehistoric man lived thickly on the moor and as no one in particular has lived there since we find all his little arrangements exactly as he left them these are his wigwams with the roofs off you can even see his hearth and his couch if you have the curiosity to go inside but it is quite a town when was it inhabited neolithic man no date what did he do he grazed his cattle on those slopes and he learned to dig for tin when the bronze sword began to supersede the stone axe look at the great trench in the opposite hill that is his mark yes you will find some very singular points about the moor dr watson oh excuse me an instant it is surely cyclopides a small fly or moth had fluttered across our path and in an instant stapleton was rushing with extraordinary energy and speed in pursuit of it to my dismay the creature flew straight for the great mire and my acquaintance never paused for an instant bounding from tuft to tuft behind it his green net waving in the air his grey clothes and jerky zigzag irregular progress made him not unlike some huge moth himself i was standing watching his pursuit with a mixture of admiration for his extraordinary activity and fear lest he should lose his footing in the treacherous mire when i heard the sound of steps and turning round found a woman near me upon the path she had come from the direction in which the plume of smoke indicated the position of merripit house but the dip of the moor had hid her until she was quite close i could not doubt that this was the miss stapleton of whom i had been told since ladies of any sort must be few upon the moor and i remembered that i had heard someone describe her as being a beauty the woman who approached me was certainly that and of a most uncommon type there could not have been a greater contrast between brother and sister for stapleton was neutral tinted with light hair and grey eyes while she was darker than any brunette whom i had seen in england slim elegant and tall she had a proud finely cut face so regular that it might have seemed impassive were it not for the sensitive mouth and the beautiful dark eager eyes with her perfect figure and elegant dress she was indeed a strange apparition upon a lonely moorland path her eyes were on her brother as i turned and then she quickened her pace towards me i had raised my hat and was about to make some explanatory remark when her own words turned all my thoughts into a new channel go back she said go straight back to london instantly i could only stare at her in stupid surprise her eyes blazed at me and she tapped the ground impatiently with her foot why should i go back i asked i cannot explain she spoke in a low eager voice with a curious lisp in her utterance but for god's sake do what i ask you go back and never set foot upon the moor again but i've only just come man man she cried can you not tell when a warning is for your own good 
Go back to London. Start to-night. Get away from this place at all costs. Hush, my brother's coming. Not a word of what I've said. Would you mind getting that orchid for me among the mare's tails yonder? We're very rich in orchids on the moor, though, of course, you are rather late to see the beauties of the place. Stapleton had abandoned the chase, and come back to us, breathing hard and flushed with his exertions. "'Hello, Beryl,' said he, and it seemed to me that the tone of his greeting was not altogether a cordial one. "'Well, Jack, you're very hot.' "'Yes, I was chasing a Cyclopedes. He is very rare and seldom found in the late autumn.' what a pity you that i should have missed him he spoke unconcernedly but his small light eyes glanced incessantly from the girl to me you have introduced yourselves i can see yes i was telling sir henry that it was rather late for him to see the true beauties of the moor why who do you think this is i imagine that it must be sir henry baskerville no no said i only a humble commoner but his friend my name is dr watson a flush of vexation passed over her expressive face we have been talking at cross purposes said she why you had not very much time for talk her brother remarked with the same questioning eyes i talked as if dr watson were a resident instead of being merely a visitor said she it cannot much matter to him whether it is early or late for the orchids but you will come on will you not and see merripit house a short walk brought us to it a bleak moorland house once the farm of some grazier in the old prosperous days but now put into repair and turned into a modern dwelling an orchard surrounded it but the trees as is usual upon the moor were stunted and nipped and the effect of the whole place was mean and melancholy we were admitted by a strange wizened rusty-coated old man-servant who seemed in keeping with the house inside however there were large rooms furnished with an elegance in which i seemed to recognize the taste of the lady as i looked from their windows at the interminable granite-flecked moor rolling unbroken to the farthest horizon i could not but marvel at what could have brought this highly educated man and this beautiful woman to live in such a place queer spot to choose is it not said he as if in answer to my thought and yet we manage to make ourselves fairly happy do we not beryl quite happy said she but there was no ring of conviction in her words i had a school said stapleton it was in the north country the work to a man of my temperament was mechanical and uninteresting but the privilege of living with youth of helping to mould those young minds and of impressing them with one's own character and ideals was very dear to me however the fates were against us a serious epidemic broke out in the school and three of the boys died it never recovered from the blow and much of my capital was irretrievably swallowed up and yet if it were not for the loss of the charming companionship of the boys i could rejoice over my own misfortune for with my strong taste for botany and zoology i find an unlimited field of work here and my sister is as devoted to nature as i am all this dr watson has been brought upon your head by your expression as you surveyed the moor out of our window 
it certainly did cross my mind that it might be a little dull less for you perhaps than for your sister no no i'm never dull said she quickly we have books we have our studies and we have interesting neighbours dr mortimer is a most learned man in his own line poor sir charles was also an admirable companion we knew him well and miss him more than i can tell do you think that i should intrude if i were to call this afternoon and make the acquaintance of sir henry i am sure that he would be delighted then perhaps you would mention that i propose to do so we may in our humble way do something to make things more easy for him until he becomes accustomed to his new surroundings will you come upstairs dr watson and inspect my collection of lepidoptera i think it is the most complete one in the southwest of england by the time that you have looked through them lunch will be almost ready but i was eager to get back to my charge the melancholy of the moor the death of the unfortunate pony the weird sound which had been associated with the grim legend of the baskervilles all these things tinged my thoughts with sadness then on top of these more or less vague impressions there had come the definite and distinct warning of miss stapleton delivered with such intense earnestness that i could not doubt that some grave and deep reason lay behind it i resisted all pressure to stay for lunch and i set off at once upon my return journey taking the grass-grown path by which we had come it seems however that there must have been some shortcut for those who knew it for before i had reached the road i was astounded to see miss stapleton sitting upon a rock by the side of the track her face was beautifully flushed with her exertions and she held her hand to her side i have run all the way in order to cut you off dr watson said she i had not even time to put on my hat i must not stop or my brother may miss me i wanted to say to you how sorry i am about the stupid mistake i made in thinking that you were sir henry please forget the words i said which have no application whatever to you but i can't forget them miss stapleton said i i am sir henry's friend and his welfare is a very close concern of mine tell me why it was that you were so eager that sir henry should return to london a woman's whim dr watson when you know me better you will understand that i cannot always give reasons for what i say or do no no i remember the thrill in your voice i remember the look in your eyes please please be frank with me miss stapleton for ever since i have been here i have been conscious of shadows all round me life has become like that great grimpen mire with little green patches everywhere into which one may sink and with no guide to point the track tell me then what it was that you meant and i will promise to convey your warning to sir henry an expression of irresolution passed for an instant over her face but her eyes had hardened again when she answered me you you make too much of it dr watson said she my brother and i were very much shocked by the death of sir charles we knew him very intimately for his favorite walk was over the moor to our house he was deeply impressed with the curse which hung over the family and when this tragedy came i naturally felt that there must be some grounds for the fears which he had expressed i was distressed therefore when another member of the family came down to live here and i felt that he should be warned of the danger which he will run 
that was all which i intended to convey but what is the danger you know the story of the hound i do not believe in such nonsense but i do if you have any influence with sir henry take him away from a place which has always been fatal to his family the world is wide why should he wish to live at the place of danger because it is the place of danger that is sir henry's nature i fear that unless you can give me some more definite information than this it would be impossible to get him to move i cannot say anything definite for i do not know anything definite i would ask you one more question miss stapleton if you meant no more than this when you first spoke to me why should you not wish your brother to overhear what you said there's nothing to which he or anyone else could object my brother is very anxious to have the hall inhabited for he thinks it is for the good of the poor folk upon the moor he will be very angry if he knew that i have said anything which might induce sir henry to go away but i have done my duty now and i will say no more i must go back or he will miss me and suspect that i have seen you good-bye she turned and had disappeared in a few minutes among the scattered boulders while i with my soul full of vague fears pursued my way to baskerville hall end of chapter seven chapter eight of the hound of the baskervilles by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight first report of dr watson from this point onward i will follow the course of events by transcribing my own letters to mr sherlock holmes which lie before me on the table one page is missing but otherwise they are exactly as written and show my feelings and suspicions of the moment more accurately than my memory clear as it is upon these tragic events can possibly do baskerville hall october thirteenth my dear holmes my previous letters and telegrams have kept you pretty well up to date as to all that has occurred in this most god-forsaken corner of the world the longer one stays here the more does the spirit of the moor sink into one's soul its vastness and also its grim charm when you are once out upon its bosom you have left all traces of modern england behind you but on the other hand you are conscious everywhere of the homes and the work of the prehistoric people on all sides of you as you walk are the houses of these forgotten folk with their graves and the huge monoliths which are supposed to have marked their temples as you look at their gray stone huts against the scarred hillsides you leave your own age behind you and if you were to see a skin-clad hairy man crawl out from the low door fitting a flint-tipped arrow onto the string of his bow you would feel that his presence there was more natural than your own the strange thing is that they should have lived so thickly on what must have always have been most unfruitful soil i am no antiquarian but i could imagine that they were some unwarlike and harried race who were forced to accept that which none other would occupy all this however is foreign to the mission on which you sent me and will probably be very uninteresting to your severely practical mind i can still remember your complete indifference as to whether the sun moved round the earth or the earth round the sun 
let me therefore return to the facts concerning sir henry baskerville if you have not had any report within the last few days it is because up to today there was nothing of importance to relate then a very surprising circumstance occurred which i shall tell you in due course but first of all i must keep you in touch with some of the other factors in the situation one of these concerning which i have said little is the escaped convict upon the moor there is strong reason now to believe that he has got right away which is a considerable relief to the lonely householders of this district a fortnight has passed since his flight during which he has not been seen and nothing has been heard of him it is surely inconceivable that he could have held out upon the moor during all that time of course so far as his concealment goes there is no difficulty at all any one of these stone huts would give him a hiding place but there's nothing to eat unless he were to catch and slaughter one of the moor sheep we think therefore that he's gone and the outlying farmers sleep the better in consequence we are four able-bodied men in this household so that we could take good care of ourselves but i confess that i have had uneasy moments when i have thought of the stapletons they live miles from any help there are one maid an old manservant the sister and the brother the latter not a very strong man they would be helpless in the hands of a desperate fellow like this notting hill criminal if he could once effect an entrance both sir henry and i were concerned at their situation and it was suggested that perkins the groom should go over to sleep there but stapleton would not hear of it the fact is that our friend the baronet begins to display a considerable interest in our fair neighbor it is not to be wondered at for time hangs heavily in this lonely spot to an active man like him and she is a very fascinating and beautiful woman there is something tropical and exotic about her which forms a singular contrast to her cool and unemotional brother yet he also gives the idea of hidden fires he has certainly a very marked influence over her for i have seen her continually glance at him as she talked as if seeking approbation for what she said i trust that he is kind to her there is a dry glitter in his eyes and a firm set of his thin lips which goes with a positive and possibly a harsh nature you would find him an interesting study he came over to call upon baskerville on that first day and the very next morning he took us both to show us the spot where the legend of the wicked hugo is supposed to have had its origin it was an excursion of some miles across the moor to a place which is so dismal that it might have suggested the story we found a short valley between rugged tors which led to an open grassy space flecked over with the white cotton grass in the middle of it rose two great stones worn and sharpened at the upper end until they looked like the huge corroding fangs of some monstrous beast in every way it corresponded with the scene of the old tragedy sir henry was much interested and asked stapleton more than once whether he did really believe in the possibility of the interference of the supernatural in the affairs of men he spoke lightly but it was evident that he was very much in earnest stapleton was guarded in his replies but it was easy to see that he said less than he might and that he would not express his whole opinion out of consideration for the feelings of the baronet
he told us of similar cases where families had suffered from some evil influence and he left us with the impression that he shared the popular view upon the matter on our way back we stayed for lunch at merry pit house and it was there that sir henry made the acquaintance of miss stapleton from the first moment that he saw her he appeared to be strongly attracted by her and i am much mistaken if the feeling was not mutual he referred to her again and again on our walk home and since then hardly a day has passed that we have not seen something of the brother and sister they dine here tonight and there is some talk of our going to them next week one would imagine that such a match would be very welcome to stapleton and yet i have more than once caught a look of the strongest disapprobation in his face when sir henry has been paying some attention to his sister he is much attached to her no doubt and would lead a lonely life without her but it would seem the height of selfishness if he were to stand in the way of her making so brilliant a marriage yet i am certain that he does not wish their intimacy to ripen into love and i have several times observed that he has taken pains to prevent them from being tete-a-tete -tete. by the way your instructions to me never to allow sir henry to go out alone will become very much more onerous if a love affair were to be added to our other difficulties my popularity would soon suffer if i were to carry out your orders to the letter the other day thursday to be more exact dr mortimer lunched with us he has been excavating a barrow at long down and has got a prehistoric skull which fills him with great joy never was there such a single-minded enthusiast as he the stapletons came in afterwards and the good doctor took us all to the yew alley at sir henry's request to show us exactly how everything occurred upon that fatal night it is a long dismal walk the yew alley between two high walls of clipped hedge with a narrow band of grass upon either side at the far end is an old tumble-down summer-house halfway down is the moor gate where the old gentleman left his cigar ash it is a white wooden gate with a latch beyond it lies the wide moor i remembered your theory of the affair and tried to picture all that had occurred as the old man stood there he saw something coming across the moor something which terrified him so that he lost his wits and ran and ran until he died of sheer horror and exhaustion there was the long gloomy tunnel down which he fled and from what a sheepdog of the moor or a spectral hound black silent and monstrous was there a human agency in the matter did the pale watchful barrymore know more than he cared to say it was all dim and vague but always there is the dark shadow of crime behind it one other neighbor i've met since i wrote last this is mr frankland of laughter hall who lives some four miles to the south of us he is an elderly man red-faced white-haired and choleric his passion is for the british law and he has spent a large fortune in litigation he fights for the mere pleasure of fighting and is equally ready to take up either side of a question so that it is no wonder that he has found it a costly amusement sometimes he will shut up a right of way and defy the parish to make him open it at others he will with his own hands tear down some other man's gate 
and declare that a path existed there from time immemorial defying the owner to prosecute him for trespass he is learned in old manorial and communal rights and he applies his knowledge sometimes in favour of the villagers of fernworthy and sometimes against them so that he is periodically either carried in triumph down the village street or else burned in effigy according to his latest exploit he is said to have about seven lawsuits upon his hands at present which will probably swallow up the remainder of his fortune and so draw his sting and leave him harmless for the future apart from the law he seems a kindly good-natured person and i only mention him because you were particular that i should send some description of the people who surround us he is curiously employed at present for being an amateur astronomer he has an excellent telescope with which he lies upon the roof of his own house and sweeps the moor all day in the hope of catching a glimpse of the escaped convict if he would confine his energies to this all would be well but there are rumours that he intends to prosecute dr mortimer for opening a grave without the consent of the next of kin because he dug up the neolithic skull in the barrow on longdown he helps to keep our lives from being monotonous and gives a little comic relief where it is badly needed and now having brought you up to date in the escaped convict the stapletons dr mortimer and frankland of laughter hall let me end on that which is most important and tell you more about the barrymores and especially about the surprising development of last night first of all about the test telegram which you sent from london in order to make sure that barrymore was really here i have already explained that the testimony of the postmaster shows that the test was worthless and that we have no proof one way or the other i told sir henry how the matter stood and he at once in his downright fashion had barrymore up and asked him whether he had received the telegram himself barrymore said that he had did the boy deliver it into your own hands asked sir henry barrymore looked surprised and considered for a little time no said he i was in the box room at the time and my wife brought it up to me did you answer it yourself no i told my wife what to answer and she went down to write it in the evening he recurred to the subject of his own accord i could not quite understand the object of your questions this morning sir henry said he i trust that they do not mean that i have done anything to forfeit your confidence sir henry had to assure him that it was not so and pacify him by giving him a considerable part of his old wardrobe the london outfit having now all arrived mrs barrymore is of interest to me she is a heavy solid person very limited intensely respectable and inclined to be puritanical you could hardly conceive a less emotional subject yet i have told you how on the first night here i heard her sobbing bitterly and since then i have more than once observed traces of tears upon her face some deep sorrow gnaws ever at her heart sometimes i wonder if she has a guilty memory which haunts her and sometimes i suspect barrymore of being a domestic tyrant i have always felt that there was something singular and questionable in this man's character but the adventure of last night brings all my suspicions to a head and yet it may seem a small matter in itself you are aware that i am not very sound sleeper 
and since i have been on guard in this house my slumbers have been lighter than ever last night about two in the morning i was aroused by a stealthy step passing my room i rose opened my door and peeped out a long black shadow was trailing down the corridor it was thrown by a man who walked softly down the passage with a candle held in his hand he was in shirt and trousers with no covering to his feet i could merely see the outline but his height told me that it was barrymore he walked very slowly and circumspectly and there was something indescribably guilty and furtive in his whole appearance i have told you that the corridor is broken by the balcony which runs round the hall but that it is resumed upon the farther side i waited until he had passed out of sight and then i followed him when i came round the balcony he had reached the end of the farther corridor and i could see from the glimmer of light through an open door that he had entered one of the rooms now all these rooms are unfurnished and unoccupied so that his expedition became more mysterious than ever the light shone steadily as if he were standing motionless i crept down the passage as noiselessly as i could and peeped round the corner of the door barrymore was crouching at the window with the candle held against the glass his profile was half turned towards me and his face seemed to be rigid with expectation as he stared out into the blackness of the moor for some minutes he stood watching intently then he gave a deep groan and with an impatient gesture he put out the light instantly i made my way back to my room and very shortly came the stealthy steps passing once more upon their return journey long afterwards when i had fallen into a light sleep i heard a key turn somewhere in a lock but i could not tell whence the sound came what it all means i cannot guess but there is some secret business going on in this house of gloom which sooner or later we shall get to the bottom of i do not trouble you with my theories for you ask me to furnish you only with facts i have had a long talk with sir henry this morning and we have made a plan of campaign founded upon my observations of last night i will not speak about it just now but it should make my next report interesting reading end of chapter eight